0: president's calling on Syria to end this and help us bring him home help us bring him home I like that collaborative language
1: the mother of an American journalist who was kidnapped in Syria a decade ago still has hope for her son's safe return it's Friday August 12th this is all things considered good afternoon I'm Steve Brown also ahead The House votes today to give final congressional approval to a package of climate, health care and tax measures that Democrats have been negotiating for, for over a year. We'll have a conversation with Lisa Snowden, editor-in-chief of the Baltimore Beat, about the return of the black-led, not-for-profit newspaper. And pray the new prequel to the 1987 blockbuster Predator, streaming on Hulu, features a sophisticated soundtrack influenced by native cultures and video games. It's 4:01 now this news.
2: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. A federal judge has ordered the unsealing of the search warrant that was executed at the Florida estate of former President Donald Trump this week. In a court filing earlier today, attorneys for Trump said he would not object to the public release. The move comes a day after the Justice Department had asked a federal judge to unseal the warrant. NPR's Ryan Lucas reports the release of the documents will give the public a better idea of what the FBI recovered at Trump's residence.
3: The inventory, or the the property receipt as it's called, uh, will give us a list of what the agents found at Mar-a-Lago. It's not going to be a a page-by-page description of each single document that they may have have taken. And that's something, of course, that will give us a much better picture. These two documents combined will give us a much better picture of what this is all about.
2: That's Ryan Lucas reporting. NPR has just learned that the FBI took several boxes of secret and top-secret documents from Trump's estate during the search. Award-winning author Salman Rushdie remains hospitalized after he was attacked during a summer lecture series in Western New York today. As NPR's Dustin Jones reports, Rushdie has faced death threats since the 1980s, stemming from his fourth novel, The Satanic Verses.
4: The attacker rushed the Chautauqua institution stage and stabbed Rushdie in the neck. According to the New York State Police, the interviewer sustained a minor head injury. Rushdie was transported to a nearby hospital by helicopter and the male suspect was taken into custody. The 75-year-old author was visiting the institution to participate in a lecture series. He was supposed to discuss the importance of freedom of expression and how the United States serves as an asylum for writers in exile. The New York State Police said it's investigating the attack, but haven't released the name of the suspect in custody. Dustin Jones,
2: NPR News. The world's atomic watchdog is reporting a further shelling incident near a Ukrainian nuclear plant. NPR's Jeff Brumfield reports experts are extremely concerned about the safety at the facility.
5: According to the International Atomic Energy Agency shelling struck near the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant's dedicated fire station. The IAEA says the strike damaged some radiation monitoring equipment. It's the third incident in less than a week. A power substation and nuclear waste facility were also hit. Edwin Lyman with the Union of Concerned Scientists says safety conditions at the plant are deteriorating. If there is
6: sustained active combat, then there's a pretty high chance you'll get a situation that you can't control.
5: The Atomic Agency is pushing hard to get a contingent of international nuclear inspectors sent to the plant to monitor conditions there. Jeff Brumfield, NPR News, Washington.
2: At last check on Wall Street, the Dow was up 424 points. This is NPR.
1: This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. The MBTA is releasing more information about the alternative transportation it will have in place when the Orange Line and part of the Green Line shuts down for about a month, starting later this month. It says neighboring commuter rail lines will make additional stops and shuttle buses will run along the shutdown. The T has also posted a rider's guide on its website to help people navigate the closures. There will be some dedicated lanes for shuttle buses. Boston is also offering free blue bikes passes during the shutdown, The shutdowns are for repairs and to finish work in advance of the Green Line extension. Bars and restaurants remain closed in a large swath of Provincetown as crews work to fix a sewer emergency. Residents in the area are still asked to reduce all water use. Public restrooms remain closed. Portions of the affected sewer system are back up and running. However, a full restoration is still not done. Town officials say heavy rains and a power outage earlier this week caused the sewer problems. Members of the state's congressional delegation are urging passage of a Democratic-backed bill known as the Inflation Reduction Act. It would expand tax credits for clean energy production, allow Medicare to negotiate prescription drug prices, and implement a new corporate minimum tax. Massachusetts Congressman Richard Neal spoke in favor of the bill during the ongoing debate today in the U.S. House.
6: This is a historic win for family pocketbooks, for Americans' health, and for the future of climate security. And we fund these gains by ensuring that large profitable companies pay their fair share.
1: Republican opponents say the bill will do little to combat inflation soon. Tax-free weekend in Massachusetts is almost here. Shoppers can save on the six and a quarter percent sales tax on many items up to $2,500. WBUR's Yasmin Amir has more.
7: Massachusetts tax-free weekend started back in 2004, and for Eva Arneson, a sales associate and furniture builder at the door store in Cambridge, tax-free weekends had more cachet in those earlier years. It's when people bought a lot of expensive
8: stuff. The last couple years, it's become more of a couple people will come in and buy some, you know, 100 or 200 dollar items, not necessarily as
9: much people buying as much as they possibly can.
7: Arneson says her furniture store still sees about four to five times the total amount of sales during tax-free weekend compared to a typical weekend. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Yasmeen Ammer.
1: In sports, the Red Sox open up a three-game series with the Yankees tonight over at Fenway. In the forecast, increasing clouds tonight. The lows around 62 degrees, cloudy through mid-morning tomorrow, followed by gradual clearing. The highs will be around 74 degrees. Sunday will be sunny, 81 degrees will be the high. Partly sunny on Monday, the highs will be near 78 degrees. Tuesday should be partly sunny with a chance of rain, the high 76. Partly sunny on Wednesday with some rain likely, the high 76. WBUR
10: supporters include Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system. Designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. On a Friday. It's all things
11: considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington.
12: And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. A judge has unsealed the warrant that the FBI used to search the property of former President Trump. Now, the unprecedented search at the Mar-a-Lago resort on Monday has been shrouded in mystery. And now we know a little bit more about what the Justice Department collected. To talk more about that, we're joined now by NPR Justice correspondent Carrie Johnson, who has been closely following this story. Hi, Carrie. Hey, Okay, so first things first, what do these new dogmas tell us about the basis, the legal basis for the FBI search at Mar-a-Lago?
13: Sure. We have a set, set of documents now. Well, first, we have the search warrant, which was approved by a judge who found that probable cause, there was probable cause to believe a crime had been committed. And the second thing we have is a property receipt. That's kind of a list of things the FBI seized from former President Trump's office and basement in Florida this week. Mm-hmm. The FBI wrote that it took documents at top secret level. That's a very high level of classification. They also took a grant of clemency to Roger Stone, a longtime political advisor to former President Trump, and some information about the president of France. Federal agents also took other secret papers and a binder of photos, but nothing much more specific than that.
12: Okay, and to be very clear here, Trump has not been charged with any wrongdoing, but Holding on to classified documents is against the law, right, Carrie?
13: There are a number of criminal statutes that could come into play here that were mentioned in these court documents, including laws against obstructing federal investigations, another law that makes it a crime to conceal, remove or mutilate government documents. And there's also a section of the Espionage Act that involves gathering, transmitting or uh, losing sensitive information related to the national defense, but to stress here, there's no criminal case against the former president right now, and indicting a former president would be an enormous step for the justice system and for the whole country.
12: Absolutely. Okay. No, I know. I know. There's a whole lot more that remains under seal, including an affidavit that would explain why the Justice Department decided to take action. When do you think we might see that affidavit?
13: Yeah, hard to say right now. A number of media organizations have asked the court to release that affidavit, which would explain the reason why the FBI thought there was probable cause and thought they would find that evidence at Mar-a-Lago. In typical cases, the public doesn't see this kind of stuff until someone's charged with a crime and then is then challenging the basis for the search. But Mm -hmm. at this stage, the DOJ, DOJ doesn't usually say anything. Attorney General Merrick Garland explained why this case is different in a short statement on Thursday.
11: The department filed the motion to make public the warrant and receipt in light of the former president's public confirmation of the search, the surrounding circumstances, and the substantial public interest in this matter.
13: Attorney General Garland asked the judge to make these pages public, and Trump did not object, which is why there's, we're seeing them now.
12: Right. OK. And just catch us up. What has Trump been saying about this search so far?
13: Trump's been all over the map this week. First, he claimed without evidence the FBI had planted evidence in Florida. And then he posted on social media the idea of this whole matter is a hoax, like the probe of Russian election interference in 2016, which was not a hoax. And earlier today, Trump said former President Obama took materials when he left the White House. And Trump alleged some of those documents were classified. That prompted the National Archives to put out a statement refuting those claims. The archive says it worked closely with Obama. It has millions of pages of documents and more classified documents, but none of them are in Obama's control. They're all under the archives control, unlike these materials found at Mar-a-Lago this week.
12: That is NPR Justice Correspondent Carrie Johnson. Thank you, Carrie. My pleasure. On the bulletin board above my desk,
11: I keep a small pin. It says, Free Austin Tice. His parents handed me that pin, and I have kept it ever since. Austin Tice is a journalist. This coming Sunday, August 14th, will mark ten years since he was detained at a checkpoint in Syria. All we have seen of him since is a video that surfaced five weeks later in which Tice appears, blindfolded and bound, surrounded by men with guns. His parents have never stopped looking for him, and they say there's evidence to suggest he is alive. Earlier this week, Deborah Tice, Austin's mom, came to NPR headquarters in Washington to speak with me again, and I noticed she was wearing her pen.
0: This is a new one.
11: Bring
14: home.
0: Bring Austin home. Bring Austin home. And um, this is the new campaign. This was started by the Washington Post. Who he wrote for. Yes. He did. And they raised a banner on their building that says, bring Austin home. And I was able to be there when they put that up. It was really great. In terms of what you know about
11: Austin, I imagine any parent would understand your need to keep hope alive and how desperately you want that to be true. Um, But you say you have evidence
0: that that is in fact true. Can you share what you know? Well, I mean it's it's Intel that's basically about as much as I can say about it From the US US government, both ways, Some from the American government. And um, I think the fact that we have no news is truly good news because I do believe if there were any kind of news, someone who cares for me would make sure that I knew.
11: You handed me that pen four years ago when I first interviewed you, uh, along with your husband, Mark, Austin's dad. And I have a few of the same questions now that I did then. Again, and I don't want to pin you down in any way that would jeopardize any negotiations uh, underway for his his release. But
0: do you know for sure that he's in Syria? He is in Syria. That is a certainty. And he is—he's definitely— Being held with a a government-related entity.
11: So some kind of group or entity with ties to the government of Bashar al-Assad.
0: Yeah.
11: Yeah. I'm thinking about how you and your family are on your third American president trying to work on this. Um, I know you you were dealing with the Obama administration and then the Trump administration. And now Biden. How engaged— is the Biden administration and trying to get your son home?
0: Our best engagement is through the National Security Council. Mm-hmm. You know, they're in the White House. So that's a good place to have our our best connections. I think you know how we got a meeting with the president that I was in the audience at the White House correspondence Dinner. So then when the president stood up
15: to speak, He pointed to me and said, Mom, I'd like to meet you and dad to talk about your son.
0: We feel fairly certain that the president was very much off script when he said that. And um, so that was Saturday night. And we had our meeting in his office Monday afternoon. Hmm.
11: And I know President Biden has just issued a statement marking the 10th anniversary of Austin's detention. Um, What's your reaction when you read it? What did you think?
0: I think we're finally on the right track. There are things in this that really touch my heart.
11: You've got a copy of the statement in front of you. Like, what what touches your heart in it? Well, I,
0: I really appreciate that the president understands that Austin is an investigative journalist who put the truth above himself. To me, that feels so much like he really knows Austin's character, and that That means a lot to me. That's in the first paragraph. And the president's calling on Syria to end this and help us bring him home. Help us bring him home. I like that collaborative language because it is going to take both, and I appreciate the acknowledgement of that.
11: A line from President Biden's statement that I was struck by was this one, quote, there is no higher priority in my administration than the recovery and return of Americans held hostage or wrongfully detained abroad. You know, I have thought of, of you, Mrs. Tice, often as we have reported on other high-profile detentions of Americans overseas. Um, the case of WNBA star Brittany Greiner in Russia right now is making headlines. It's obviously a very different situation from your son's. But I, I have wondered what goes through your mind as you follow these other cases.
0: Every effort to bring someone home raises the water for everyone else that wants to come home. And so um, I can tell you that, that when I saw the news so early in the morning that Trevor Reed was free...
11: Another American who'd been held in Russia.
0: Yes, and I was just, hallelujah, good brother. You know, you just paved a highway for Austin because you showed that we can engage, that we can negotiate and that we can make a concession. These are things I've been told for nine years cannot happen. So what are we lacking in Austin's case? It must be the will.
11: It sounds as though after 10 years of what I'm sure has been hell (laughs) every day, you sound as determined and hopeful and actually like there is some progress, like things are moving.
0: I do believe things are moving now. Keeping in mind that we're almost three and a half months from our meeting with the president, we had certainly expected that we would have him home before August 14th. Whatever it is that Austin does to keep time, on Sunday, Austin will have to know it's been 10 years. And that is one of the deepest pains that I've felt over all of this time, because he should not be there now. So I am. I'm I'm more hopeful than I've been in a very long time. Deborah Tice, thank you. Thank you so much, Mary Louise. Thank you for making this time.
11: Deborah Tice, her son... The journalist Austin Tice was kidnapped in Syria 10 years ago this week.
12: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
1: This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown. 77 degrees in Boston at 419. Ahead on All Things Considered, the black-led, not-for-profit newspaper, Baltimore Beat, is back. We'll hear from the paper's editor-in-chief. In business news, the largest employers in Massachusetts are a little smaller than they used to be. The Boston Business Journal Review of Headcounts finds the total number of workers is down 7 percent in the last year at the biggest 25 employers in the state. Losses were most pronounced in healthcare, care, grocery stores, and technology companies. Economists believe the decline is a result of a combination of worker burnout, layoffs, and a labor shortage. On Wall Street today, stocks closed the day higher. The Dow up 424 points, closing at 33,761. NASDAQ was up 267 points at 13,047.
16: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering Internet service over a gig, designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com slash gig. And Cityside Subaru on Route 60 in Belmont, where the Summer of Love event is underway, featuring the all-wheel-drive Subaru Crosstrek, CitysideSubaru.com.
1: Check out WBUR's recommendations for summer books with a New England twist. Sign up for our pop up newsletter at wbur.org/slash beachbooks. The forecast increase in clouds tonight, the lows around 62, cloudy through mid morning tomorrow, followed by gradual clearing. Support for NPR
17: comes from this station and from Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business works to help simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at amazonbusiness.com. And from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax-efficient strategies at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE. And from the Lemelson Foundation. This is All Things Considered
11: from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly.
8: And I'm Juana Summers. Alternative weekly newspapers are known for holding their city's institutional powers accountable, from government to the other media in town. In Baltimore, the city paper circulated for four decades, and that alt weekly story ended like so many others, shuttered. The Baltimore Beat stepped in to fill the void, but roughly four months later, it shuttered too. And ever since, journalists have been working to revive it. And this week, that happened. The Baltimore Beat is back now as a nonprofit, black led bi weekly publication, available online or in print, all free of charge. Lisa Snowden is the editor in chief of The Baltimore Beat, and she joins us now to discuss. Welcome to All Things Considered, Lisa, and congratulations. Hi, thank you so much. So, Lisa, this is a publication that is launching in Baltimore, a city that is more than 60% African-American. And the Baltimore Beat is not the only Black-led publication or news organization focused on Black audiences. Why does that diversity of options in a city like Baltimore matter so much?
18: Well, I think there's a few reasons. Number one, we're not a monolith. I think that there are ways that the Afro, which has been around for over 100 years, meets Baltimore's needs. There's the Baltimore Times that does that also, but I think that we can find a particular lane with the Baltimore Beat. We have city paper in our DNA, so I think that our lane is not at all to try to replace a 100-plus-year-old paper. Our lane is to figure out how to hold government accountable and do the things that we can do, provide deep arts coverage in the way that we can do it. I think Black people deserve
8: a multitude of media
18: outlets. We're just trying to help contribute to that.
8: I want to quote from part of The Beat's statement on values. We do not believe there is a difference between arts coverage and hard news and understand that art is inherently political. Why did you feel the need to spell that out so plainly and make that distinction?
18: I think that draws on our alt-weekly roots, that this would not be a place where you would maybe just find big name stars. Maybe you'd find people having shows in alleys or, Mm -hmm. you know, the cellars of buildings. And both of those are important. And also that art is a thing that happens just like, quote unquote, the news.
8: Another thing that you talked about in that value statement is the fact that you all wanna focus on the joy of being a Baltimorean. So Lisa, I wanna ask you, what does that mean for you? It's a place that you have to have a sense of humor
18: (laughs) in. People here are so blunt and also so real. And I feel like that's lost so much in the conversations about the city. We hear sometimes some very horrible racist things about the violence that happens here. And maybe we hear about the wire, but there's so much else that isn't talked about and we just want to give space for that.
8: In an earlier interview, one of your colleagues told Baltimore Magazine that some newspaper distribution boxes may eventually serve as community exchange boxes so that people can take what they need and leave what they can, get things like gloves and hats in the winter. What's your thinking there?
18: So not only is there access in our boxes for information, the things that we're writing and printing, but just like a very easy way to contribute to the community so that people can put water bottles in there, books in there. We have we have one already out on the streets and it has Narcan in there. Mm. And I think, you know, as people are still suffering from the economic impact of the pandemic, people are gonna need that kind of thing like more than ever.
8: You have described The Beat elsewhere as a teaching newsroom. What does that mean and why does that matter?
18: Journalism is not a career where you're gonna make a lot of money. It's worse if you're Black. And not only that, if you're Black, you're often the only Black person, or maybe one of two or three others in the newsroom. And that can be a very distinct struggle. And so we really wanted the Beat to be a place where Black journalists can get an education, can stay here if they would like to make a life in Baltimore, or get their clips and maybe move somewhere else. I think that was very important to be intentional about that. Baltimore has Morgan State University, which is a historically black college right here. And so it's like, I want those people that come to this community to stay here because we need their voices.
8: Lisa Snowden is the editor in chief of the Baltimore Beat, which relaunched this week. Lisa, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. The movie Prey
11: is a prequel to Predator, a blockbuster Arnold Schwarzenegger hit from the 1980s. Prey is streaming now on Hulu. It's about a high-tech alien warrior landing on the Comanche plains 300 years ago. The score comes with its own backstory, as Tim Grieving reports.
4: The original Predator was a vicious game hunter from outer space equipped with thermal vision, a cloaking device, and big nasty mandibles. The new movie, Prey, goes back in time for an origin story, plopping the predator into the bucolic world of the Comanche people before the real-life invasion of alien colonists from Europe. Prey's director Dan Trachtenberg and producer Jane Myers, a Comanche herself, filled the cast with native actors and even recorded a Comanche-language dub. But Trachtenberg is also a gamer, and for the film's score, he sought out a non-native video game composer he admired, Sarah Schachner.
19: He had been playing Assassin's Creed Valhalla while they were in production on the film, and he really liked what he heard.
4: Schachner specializes in finding ancient, unusual instruments and weaving them into a modern action tapestry. She found a collaborator from a list of native musicians sent by producer Jane Myers, including a Grammy winner from New Mexico, who felt the story of Prey was surprisingly familiar.
6: Living on a traditional Pueblo with ancient stories and ancient philosophy, we have stories like this, of the star people, of, we call them or
4: Robert Mirabal grew up in Taos Pueblo and still lives there now those don't even translate except for
6: the people of the heavens or the mud soap people or something like that. So it just was something that we grew up with.
4: For Prey, Mirabal got a chance to bring his work to a more mainstream audience. He marries traditional native idioms and instruments to modern jazz and rock. He plays multiple instruments but specializes in flutes, including a double-barreled one he invented himself. Composer Sarah Shackner had Mirabal go into a studio and improvise a library of free ranging tones and notes. She took those tracks and incorporated them throughout her score for Prey. This being mid-pandemic, he was in New Mexico, she was in Los Angeles. At the end of their one-day remote recording session, Shackner asked Mirabal if he also sang.
19: And he was like, yeah, I sing." And he just sung something so honest and pure. It touched me when he sung it, and I know it it was so unplanned, and it really just helped in certain moments of the film give that kind of extra layer of depth.
6: It's almost as if though you're whispering the story. There's a visual aspect to it, but then there's a whole nother mystical side of the story that is whispered to you through music.
4: So if you watch Prey, a movie about a high-tech humanoid that dismembers its victims, listen for that whisper in between all the screaming. For NPR News, I'm Tim Grieving.
11: This is NPR News.
1: This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown. 77 degrees in Boston at 429. Ahead on All Things Considered, the latest on the tax fraud case against the Trump Organization. That's just ahead here on 90.9 WBUR.
20: We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off, an educational and wellness program in Wellesley helping college-age students and high school grads get on track. Academics, executive functioning coaching, yoga, and exercise are designed to help develop resilience, improve confidence, and learn new skills. Fall semester starts
15: September 19th. SemesterOff.com. Hi, this is Steve Inskeep with a reminder that this public radio station is a collaboration. Many of my colleagues are working in the middle of the night to bring you the latest information when you get up in the morning. You don't have to do that, but you can contribute in other ways like donating your old car. Turn your old car into Morning Edition, all things considered, and all the voices you trust. There's never been a more important time to strengthen your station. Here's how.
16: Just go to WBUR.org.
21: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. Author Salman Rushdie was stabbed this morning as he prepared to speak at the Chautauqua Institution in western New York. Rushdie spent years in hiding and under police protection after Iranian officials declared he should be killed for his writings. New York State Police say he was stabbed in the neck. Speaking at an event in Long Island, Governor Kathy Hochul of New York praised authorities for their quick response. I want to commend... The state police, it was a state police officer who stood up and saved his life, protected him. The accused assailant was apprehended at the scene and has not been identified publicly. Rushdie was airlifted to a nearby hospital and rushed into surgery. An unsealed warrant for the search of Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago home shows the FBI took several boxes of documents marked secret and top secret during its search on Monday. The former president's family business is headed to trial this fall. NPR's Ilya Meritz reports a judge has cleared the way for a criminal case to open in October in New York State Court.
5: Prosecutors allege the Trump Organization and its former CFO, Alan Weisselberg, conspired to evade federal, state, and local taxes on millions of dollars of income over over a decade and a half. The Trump business allegedly paid Weisselberg through living expenses and private school tuition for his relatives, all undeclared forms of income. The defendants moved to dismiss the case, arguing there was insufficient evidence and that prosecutors showed political animus. The judge denied those motions, but did remove one count against the Trump Organization. Jury selection is set to begin October 24th. Ilya Meritz, NPR News, New York.
21: Wall Street has closed out its first four-week winning streak since November. Reports showing inflation cooled more than expected last month, led stocks higher. The Dow closed up 424 points at 33,761. The S&P up 72. This is NPR.
1: This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. The MBTA has released some new details for alternate transit during the closures of the Orange Line and the green parts of the Green Line that begin n- late next week. Shuttle buses will make stops between Forest Hills and Back Bay, between Haymarket and Oak Grove, and between Government Center and Union Square. No shuttle buses will run between Tufts Medical and State. There will be added service on the Silver Line. There will also be increased commuter rail service, which will be free for riders with a Charlie card. Riders can now be able to access a planning guide on their T's website to find alternate options for their routes. The T says it has also begun posting detailed information today about the diversion in affected stations. Boston based researchers have noticed an alarming increase in complications from pregnancy and birth during the pandemic. WBUR's Priyanka Dayal McCluskey reports these problems follow major disruptions in health care during the first year of COVID.
22: A new study shows Americans were more likely to have hypertension during pregnancy and severe bleeding after giving birth.
23: And one of the most concerning things that we saw was that, unfortunately, even though it was small, the rate of maternal death in this study went up.
22: Dr. Jose Figueroa of Brigham and Women's Hospital is senior author of the study. He says healthcare shutdowns early in the pandemic meant fewer ultrasounds and blood pressure checks that can help identify problems early.
23: Routine obstetric outpatient care was just completely disrupted.
22: COVID-related stress also may have led to more pregnancy complications. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Priyanka Adele-McCluskey.
1: The City of Boston is releasing details on how it's spent the money from the fees it charged North End restaurants to host outdoor dining this year. It says it collected about $300,000 from the program but spent more than double that for things like keeping streets and sidewalks clean. Bill Galaitis is the managing partner of Tresca on Hanover Street. He says he's seen the impact of the fees his restaurant
24: paid. We've noticed an increase in enforcement. Uh, We've noticed more inspectors down there uh, making sure that all the restaurants adhere to the new rules and regulations of the program. You know, we would love to see this program becoming a permanent program.
1: Jen Royal also paid the fee for her restaurant table and says any expectations she had for the program were not met.
8: There's trash everywhere. So you know what? If the city paid $623,000 to keep the neighborhood clean, then then their money was not spent very wisely.
1: Outdoor dining in the North End is expected to end in September. In sports, the Red Sox open up a three-game series with the Yankees tonight over at Fenway Park. In the forecast, increasing clouds tonight. The lows will be around 62 degrees. Cloudy through mid-morning tomorrow, followed by gradual clearing. The highs will be around 74 degrees. Sunday will be sunny. 81 degrees will be the high. Partly sunny on Monday, a high of 78. Right now, it's 76 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR.
17: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Avalara, providing cloud-based sales tax solutions for businesses of all sizes, with real-time tax rate calculations and automatic return filing. Learn more at avalara.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at AlignProbiotics.com.
11: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington.
12: And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. The House is set to vote soon on the Inflation Reduction Act. The roughly $700 billion legislation will clear Congress without a single Republican vote and then head to President Biden for his signature. If you are sitting at your kitchen table and wonder how you're going to pay the bills, your health care bills, your uh, prescription drug bills, this bill's for you. That is House Speaker Nancy Pelosi celebrating the achievement earlier today.
11: Now, the bill includes a lot of Democratic priorities, like addressing climate change, reducing the cost of prescription drugs. But it is far from the lofty plans that Democrats originally hoped
12: they could pass with majorities in the House and the Senate. All right. NPR congressional correspondent Kelsey Snell has been following this bill and joins us now. Hi, Kelsey. Hi there. OK, just remind us, what is in this bill?
25: Well, like you said, this covers a lot of ground. Drug prices, health care, climate and energy and tax policy, you know, this. the big things that people are watching here is it would allow Medicare to negotiate directly on the cost of drugs. That's something Democrats have been talking about for a long time. They also have a goal of reducing emissions by 40 percent, and that comes from about $369 billion in climate and energy security investments, about half of the spending in the bill. Uh, That includes tax credits for wind and solar and other renewable energy, um, and their incentives for residential and commercial investments in energy efficiency. Efficiency. And that is all offset or partially offset um, by changes to tax policy, including a 15% minimum tax. On billion-dollar corporations and more IRS enforcement.
12: Okay, so that sounds like a lot, but all of that is essentially the replacement for the bigger Build Back Better mm-hmm. plan that was a lot of President Biden's agenda. How does this legislation exactly stack up against what was first promised?
25: Well, we should say they worked on this for more than a year, and in that time, things like uh, you know funding for childcare and universal pre-K and paid family leave were dropped. Out of the negotiations. Mm-hmm. There aren't changes to insulin prices for people on private insurance or really much in the way of changes in drug pricing for those people either. And this is a lot less ambitious on climate than they had originally hoped. I spoke with Budget Committee Chairman Bernie Sanders yesterday, and he said he voted for this bill despite the fact that it doesn't do nearly enough of what he wanted. And he's worried people are becoming disillusioned because Congress isn't meeting their needs, particularly on health care.
26: But I am very Very worried that ordinary Americans by the millions are giving up on democracy, giving up on whether or not their government cares about them and can address their needs.
25: You know, but Democrats I talk to say this bill is really reflective of the moment and of political reality. And, you know, Sanders himself said that it's hard to get much done in a 50-50 Senate with a slim majority in the House. And sure. he says that's why he wants a more progressive Democrats elected to the House and to the Senate.
12: Well, Kelsey, how soon do you think it will be when most people will be able to feel like actual impact from this bill?
25: Well, when it comes to the title of the bill, reducing inflation, <laughs> don't expect anything anytime soon. Okay. You know, the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office says the bill has a negligible effect on inflation in 2022 and 2023. Okay. Much of the clean energy and energy efficiency tax credits, though, will be available as soon as the bill becomes law. Other elements like the extended health care tax credits and changes to the AC- ACA, just they won't expire. So people won't experience that as a new benefit. Just make sure they don't lose things that already exist. Medicare starts to negotiate uh, prescription drug prices at the end—I'm sorry, at the start of 2023, but that won't be noticed right away either. That really means that most of these changes won't hit people before they vote, so it's entirely up to Democrats to figure
12: out how to explain it to people. That is NPR congressional correspondent Kelsey Snell. Thank you, Kelsey. Thanks for having me.
11: Uh, At the end of a week of mounting legal problems for former President Donald Trump— Here's one more. We learned today that Trump's family business will go on trial on multiple felony counts. That's in October in New York. And Piers Ilya Meritz was in court today for a pretrial hearing in the Manhattan District Attorney's case against the Trump Organization. Hey there, Ilya.
5: Hi, Mary Louise. So
11: it's almost easy to lose sight of this case. After a week, when we saw Trump's Mar-a-Lago home searched by the FBI. Trump sat for a deposition. He took the fifth like a gazillion times. Just remind us, this is The Manhattan DA's case, what is it?
5: You're right. There are dozens of investigations and cases swirling around the 45th president, but this is the only criminal case he currently faces. Okay. He is not charged, but his company, the Trump Organization, is, and as is its longtime chief financial officer, Alan Weisselberg. Prosecutors say the Trump Organization and Weiselberg conspired to evade federal, state and local taxes over a decade and a half. One way this worked, allegedly, is that the Trump Organization would cover living expenses, cars, private school tuition for Weiselberg and his family. And that amounted to millions of dollars of income that was never declared. These schemes saved both the Trump Organization and Weiselberg allegedly a lot of money. Uh, that they should have been paying in taxes. The Trump Organization and Weisselberg have pleaded not guilty.
11: Now, you were in court today. What happened? What'd you learn?
5: Judge Juan Mershon began the hearing by denying defense motions to dismiss the case. He did remove one count against the Trump Organization. That had to do with the statute of limitations, but they still face many other counts. Next, the judge ordered jury selection to begin October 24th, and it looks likely the trial would begin a few days after that. So what that means is that by Election Day, prosecutors could be producing lots of exhibits and unflattering information about the internal workings of the Trump family business. I mention Election Day, of course, uh, because even though Donald Trump is not on the ballot, a lot of candidates backed by him are. And this trial will likely add to this already heated atmosphere we're seeing where law enforcement and politics are converging around the former president.
11: All right. Um, Just to emphasize what you're saying, this is the Trump organization, the Trump business that will be tried. What about Trump personally? Is he insulated or is there some potential he could be drawn in?
5: Well, Donald Trump went to the Supreme Court twice to try to block the investigation that led to these charges. He failed both times. This is Trump's family business founded by his grandmother handed to him by his father. So it is personal. However, at one point last year, it really looked like this case was possibly the biggest legal threat to Trump. Local prosecutors here were looking closely at Donald Trump's own actions. It seemed he might be personally charged with financial crimes. But a new district attorney was sworn in at the beginning of this year. Trump hasn't been charged, and his lawyers think he's in the clear now in this case, even if his company is not Nevertheless, he's got to be spending a lot of money on attorneys to defend his business.
11: Okay, so uh, to circle back to this um, terrible, horrible, no good, very bad week that Trump, or at least his lawyers, are having, what are you watching for next?
5: Of course, we're all eager to learn more about the FBI search warrant for Mar-a-Lago and what it means and what they found there. But I think it's important to keep an eye on the New York cases. The trial of the Trump Organization could surface a lot of information about Trump's business from before the time he was in politics right up to the time he was the president. Uh, And then there is another related threat to the company, and that's from the New York Attorney General, Tish James, Her office is the one that deposed Trump this week. She is close to reaching a decision as to whether to file civil charges. Now, civil charges sounds less meaningful than criminal, but Mm -hmm. if she accuses him of civil charges and wins, she could try to get some punitive damages or even dissolve the Trump organization. Her office is the one that shut down the Trump Foundation a few years ago.
11: That's NPR's Ilya Merits in New York. Thank you.
5: You're very welcome. (laughs)
12: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. The
11: war in Ukraine is causing a shortage in one of the most important commodities in the world, neon gas. It's essential for making microchips like the ones in your laptop, your phone, your PlayStation. Now prices are up 5,000 percent. As Jeff Guo from our Planet Money podcast explains, the reason has to do with the Cold
14: War, Soviet economics and dreams of space lasers. Here's a funny thing about this neon shortage. Neon is a gas that's literally in the air all around us. You're breathing it right now. So any country in the world could, in theory, produce lots of neon. And yet for a long time, most of the world's neon has come from just two places, Ukraine and Russia. The story of how that happened starts with the Cold War, with a discovery.
1: It's a miracle called the laser.
14: In the 1960s, scientists started using neon in a powerful new kind of laser. A laser that could cut metals, perform surgeries, and maybe also do scarier things?
10: The laser literally can vaporize any substance on Earth instantaneously.
14: This neon laser technology got the Soviets really excited. They were even dreaming of space lasers. And since their ambitions required a lot of neon...
1: They produced large quantities for their military effort during the Cold War.
14: Dick Betzendahl is an expert on the neon market. He spent decades working with producers in the former Soviet Union, and he says the Soviets built more neon-harvesting facilities than anyone in the world.
1: It wasn't an economic decision. It was a decision based
14: on, we might need it. And that is why no one else was doing this? Well, yeah, because the
3: rest of the world was Western in belief and it was everything is based on economics.
14: Whereas the Soviets didn't care as much about the economics. They were collecting the neon for their future laser projects, which maybe didn't all pan out. Then the Cold War ended and all these neon facilities
10: started selling to the rest of the world. So all of a sudden you had all this product on the market and that caused a huge dip in pricing right across the board.
14: John Raquet runs the magazine Gas World. It's like the Newsweek of the gas industry. He says at that point in the 1990s, the world still wasn't sure what to do with all that Soviet neon. There's only so many glowing signs that humanity needs. That's why everybody was happy to sit back and let Russia and Ukraine make all the neon.
10: But there was so much of it, and because there was so much of it coming out of Russia, Ukraine, or the former Soviet Union, the West didn't invest as much in neon production.
14: That was until about 10 years ago. As we were trying to make microchips smaller and smaller, we realized that neon breathing lasers were perfect for etching these tinier and tinier circuits. That's when demand for neon started going through the roof. The Soviets imagined this future where they needed absurd amounts of neon for their laser space weapon fantasies. But now the world really does need tons of neon, not for death rays, but for something way more important, to make Nintendos. So places like China have been trying to build their own neon facilities over the last five years, but it's not enough. Russia and Ukraine still make about a third of the world's neon. And now with Russia's invasion, much of that is offline leaving most chipmakers hoping for more supply soon. And because it's neon, that supply could come from, well, almost anywhere. Jeff Guo, NPR News.
17: Support for Planet Money comes from Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world.
12: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
1: This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown. 76 degrees in Boston at 449. Ahead on All Things Considered, we'll hear from the author of the new novel, A Map for the Missing. It's a story about family, forgiveness, and the challenge of grappling with the past while charting a path for the future. That's ahead here on WBUR. Coming to City Space on Monday, August 15th, a primary debate with the Republican candidates for Massachusetts lieutenant governor. Free in-person and virtual tickets can be obtained at WBUR.org slash events. In the forecast, we'll have increasing clouds tonight. The low is around 62 degrees. Cloudy through mid-morning tomorrow, followed by gradual clearing. The highs will be around 74. Sunday will be sunny. 81 degrees will be the high. Partly sunny on Monday. The high is near 78 degrees. Again, right now, it's 76 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our
10: listeners, and by Sullivan Tire and Auto Service. Family-owned and operated, offering brand-name tires and complete auto service for more than 67 years. More at sullivantire.com. And the MBTA, helping tens of thousands of people reach their destinations every day. The MBTA is hiring across multiple departments. The T offers competitive salaries, solid benefits, and established paths for growth. For more information and to apply today, visit mbta.com careers.
4: Sales of vinyl surged during the pandemic, which kept stores singing, but how they've got a problem records are the biggest thing that jumped up in price. Everything else has stayed pretty the same. I mean, do you learn record inflation? Next time on Marketplace.
15: Tonight at 630 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station.
12: From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang.
27: And I'm Ari Shapiro. The novel A Map for the Missing opens in the United States in the 1990s. A young academic named Tang Yitian gets a phone call from his mother back in a small Chinese village. She shouts, your father's gone missing. That first line of the book is written in Chinese characters.
28: I imagine for Tang Yitian, this moment when he hears the news that his father goes missing must be incredibly disorienting and um, almost feel like a terror in reality and I wanted to recreate that feeling for readers um, when they encountered the book's first pages.
27: This is Belinda Hui Tong's debut novel. The story jumps back and forth in time from the 1990s to the 70s at the end of China's cultural revolution. It was a time of upheaval, especially in rural areas like the village where her main character and her own father grew up. And there are other parallels between fiction and the author's family history, like the high stakes college entrance exam called the Gaokao.
28: Think of it as the SAT on steroids because it is the only thing that really determines college admissions in China. There's there's no other factors involved. It's such a high stakes exam and during the period of the Cultural Revolution when higher education was being devalued, the Gaokao was Put on pause for a period of ten years. It was terminated, and a recommendation system by the Communist Party was used for college entrance. Mm. Um, And so we encounter the characters when they um, have just lived through a period where there is no system where they can access higher education. But that class, the 1977 Gaokao class, as it's known, is extremely famous in all of China. You can trace so many of today's Um, biggest politicians, writers, people in entertainment, people in universities back to that class, because basically what you had was the most talented, smartest people in the country who had not been able to access college for 10 years, suddenly all competing for um, a certain amount of spots. Hmm. And so it just has such lore around it.
27: You write in the novel that six million people were competing for 200,000 spots that year. Is that a, a real number? Is that accurate?
28: That is a real number. And because of that, we see when Tang Yitian passes, that's something that is seen not only as a big event for him, but something that his entire community sees as an almost historical event.
27: Why did you want to zero in on this moment in Chinese history for your debut novel?
28: I think it's the moment when China changes from, you know, the Cultural Revolution, all that tumult of that period to the China that we know it as today, which is this global superpower. And as I was thinking about writing um, about these Chinese characters, it was just the moment in history where there were so many forces pressing on them, social and cultural, that just made for really right fiction.
27: Your main character, Tang Yitian, uh, who's an adjunct professor in the U.S., goes home to see the village where he grew up for the first time in years. He encounters this disconnect between his own experience of financial struggle in the U.S. and the assumption of everybody in his village that because he's in America, he's wealthy. I know your father grew up in China and came to the United States for graduate school where he got his doctorate degree. Was, Was this something that he experienced too?
28: Yeah, it was. I think, and it's something that I even experience now when I travel back to China with him. I can see how people in the village see him. You know, he's this figure who's come to take on, um, you know, almost a, a legend to him that he was the first person to leave the village. And when I, when we go to the village, there are these um, like stones that are engraved with his name and
29: wow. I think,
28: yeah, they're engraved with his name. And
27: Like for buildings that he helped fund?
28: Um, he donated some money, but it's also just part of like, this is the history of our village and people who are kind of famous and well-known that have left our village And so he has this lore to him in the village, and that's so different than the way I know him, which is just, you know, as a a pretty ordinary middle class person growing up in the U.S., we certainly had our struggles. And it's amazing to me to see the gap between my knowledge of him and how people in his village view him.
27: Have your parents read the book? I'm curious what kinds of conversations it may have sparked.
28: My dad read the book. I asked him to read the book after I'd sold it, mostly as almost a fact-checking exercise. Sure, I'd yeah. had, <laughs> i had so many nerves about showing him this book, um, and it felt almost like something I was doing in secret for a couple years. Um, and it was just funny because here I had for many you know years like the best primary source about the book, and I was afraid <laughs> to just ask him. And I would spend hours doing research that could have been really easily asked and answered if I just reached out to him. Hmm. Um, So when I finally showed him the book, I was so nervous, um, but I also felt like it was something I absolutely had to do. I felt I couldn't let this book go out into the world without having showed it to him. Um, And we did have a couple long conversations about facts in the book, and he would tell me stuff that I got wrong and I got right. And then at the very end of our last phone call, he said, you know, and I think you should change the ending because it made me cry too much and it was too Mm. sad. And then after that, he just hung up the phone and we never talked about it again.
27: (laughs) And you didn't Uh, change the ending.
28: I didn't change the ending because (laughs) I, (laughs) I think for him, I can see, you know maybe if he's feeling some affinity for this character, he wants to have a notion of a happy ending.
13: Of
29: course. Um,
28: That for me as a writer, I don't think it would serve the characters or the story I'm trying to tell to give to them.
27: I'm just fascinated by the idea of you going to these great lengths to do research, to answer questions that you could have called your father for an answer to. Was there anything he told you after reading the book that was a specific detail that just jumped out to you as something he experienced firsthand that either you got right or you didn't in the initial draft?
28: The biggest change I made after talking to him was around something um, about the mindset of people during the Cultural Revolution. There's a scene early on where one of the sent down youth in the village-
27: The sent down youth are the folks from the cities who go to the countryside to work the land.
28: That's correct. They're forcibly relocated from cities to, to rural areas of China during this period. Um, one of the sent down youth commits an act of self-harm. And in the original draft that I had written of this book, the the sent down youth are kind of planning with one another. How do we get sent back to our cities? How do we do that? Well, let's, if we get injured, they have to send us back. Um, And when I talked to my dad, he said, no, you know, the mindset of that time, people were scared to talk to each other about things like that because you could get reported at any point. Um, And if so, one of the If one of the women was going to do this, they would do it in secret, and they wouldn't even dare to tell their closest friends around them. And also, I had, I stepped back at that point to reconsider, to make sure it's kind of like that atmosphere of constant fear and surveillance um, was present in this book.
27: Belinda Hui Jintang's debut novel is A Map for the Missing. Thank you for talking with us about it.
28: Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure.
17: This is NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from the American Lung Association and Pfizer, working together to raise awareness of pneumococcal pneumonia. Information on adult vaccinations for pneumococcal pneumonia is at lung.org pneumococcal. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at indeed.com slash NPR. And from Fisher Investments, wealth management from dedicated advisors that tailor portfolios to each client's unique goals. More at fisherinvestments.com. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss.
25: I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUR-Tisbury, and 89one WBUH WBUR-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
1: Court papers show that the FBI recovered documents labeled top secret from former President Donald Trump's Florida estate. The papers released today indicate the seized records also include some that are in a special category meant to protect the nation's most important secrets. This is All Things Considered. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown. Ahead, the latest on the documents seized by the FBI at Mar-a-Lago. Also ahead, a visit to a village north of Kabul that is home to pro-Taliban and anti-Taliban families. Both sides have paid dearly in Afghanistan's decades of war. And 2,000 Kaiser mental health workers plan to go on strike on Monday. They say Kaiser has failed to follow California law and make sure patients with mental health needs are given prompt care. It's 5.01. Now this
24: news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. A federal judge has made public the warrant and other documents from the FBI's search this week of former President Trump's Mar-a-Lago residence. NPR's Ryan Lucas reports they show federal agents recovered boxes of highly classified government documents.
3: One of the documents unsealed by the court is the property receipt, which is an inventory of what agents seized during the Mar-a-Lago search. It says the FBI took several documents marked secret and top secret, as well as various documents at an even higher level of classification, labeled TSSCI. Agents also took information regarding the president of France, as well as the executive grant of clemency for Trump's longtime informal advisor, Roger Stone. The search warrant was also made public, and it indicates that the FBI is investigating the potential unlawful retention of defense-related information, the destruction of documents, and the unlawful removal of government records. Ryan Lucas, NPR News, Washington.
24: Author Salman Rushdie, whose writings include the book The Satanic Verses*, is hospitalized after being attacked and apparently stabbed while speaking at the Chautauqua Institution in New York State. A bloodied Rushdie was flown to a nearby hospital. There is no word on his condition. The 75-year-old Rushdie was stabbed or punched by the assailant shortly after being introduced for a lecture he was about to give. The attacker was also not immediately identified. Rushdie spent years in hiding after receiving death threats from Iran over his writings. Ukraine's infrastructure minister said today a shipment of Ukrainian grain is now said to be loaded for delivery to Ethiopia, where war has exacerbated food shortages. NPR's Joannica Kisses has that story.
20: Infrastructure minister Oleksandr Kubrakov wrote on Facebook that a container ship called the Brave Commander is set to deliver 23,000 tons of grain to Ethiopia. The UN negotiated the wartime deal to export Ukrainian grain and cooking oil by sea to help address global food shortages and rising prices. Turkey's defense ministry also said two more ships have departed Ukrainian ports loaded with grain. The star Laura is shipping more than 60,000 tons of corn to Iran while the Sormovsky-121 is sending about 3,000 tons of wheat to Turkey. Joanna Kakissis, NPR News, Uman,
24: Ukraine. After at least one case of polio that left a person north of New York City paralyzed, it seems perhaps many more people may have the disease and not yet know it. That's after authorities said they've detected the virus that causes the potentially deadly disease in New York City's wastewater. Authorities say that would indicate the polio virus may be circulating widely and parents are being urged to get their children vaccinated. Most people infected with polio have no symptoms but can give the virus to others for days or weeks. Stocks rounded out a winning week on Wall Street today. The Dow up 424 points. The Nasdaq jumped 267 points. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9
1: WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. Provincetown officials estimate the the sewer emergency that shut down local bars and restaurants will be solved by day's end. Residents are still being asked to conserve water use and public bathrooms remain closed. Food establishments in the affected area are required to remain closed until at least the morning. The town is set to issue another update later this evening, around 8.30. The sewer system was damaged this week by thunderstorms and a power outage. The state's largest health care system is suffering financial losses and expects the challenges to continue. Mass General Brigham reported this afternoon an operating loss of $120 million in its third quarter. Niam Gandhi is Mass General Brigham's Chief Financial Officer. He says the challenge of finding nurses and the costs of temporary staff are driving higher expenses across the healthcare industry.
23: The nursing shortage is real, and I don't think would be as severe as it is right now if it weren't for the pandemic that, that our
24: nurses just had to endure.
1: Mass General Brigham also says inflation is hurting the bottom line because medical supplies cost more. There's a new transportation option for the month-long shutdowns of the Orange Line and part of the Green Line that start later this month. The city said today it will offer free 30-day passes to the Blue Bikes Bike Share Network. Mayor Michelle Wu says the city will also have dedicated pop-up bike lanes on Columbus Ave, Stewart Street, and Boylston Street. Not all Massachusetts shopkeepers are happy with the state's sales tax holiday system. Once a year, the state drops the sales tax on most products for one weekend. Richard Coombs runs a bicycle shop in Boston South End called Community Bike Supply. He hasn't sold a lot of bikes lately, and he blames that on the sales tax suspension coming up this weekend.
15: I think it has a negative effect for the two, three, maybe even four weeks before the holiday as people defer making purchases before the holiday
1: coom says the holiday weekend itself is exciting but exhausting he's spending most of the day today assembling bikes in anticipation of tomorrow's rush state officials are urging people to make sure campfires are thoroughly drowned and grills are always attended amid a higher fire risk most of massachusetts is in what the state calls a level three critical drought and the National Weather Service says the fire risk is elevated statewide all day today because it's windy and humidity has dropped. Sports, the Red Sox open up a three-game series with the Yankees tonight over at Fenway. And the forecast, increasing clouds tonight. The lows around 62, cloudy through mid-morning tomorrow, followed by gradual clearing. The highs will be around 74 degrees. Sunday will be sunny. 81 degrees will be the high. Partly sunny on Monday. The high is near 78. Tuesday should be partly sunny with a chance of rain. The high is around 76 degrees. Right now it is 76 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR.
16: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Progressive Insurance with its Name Your Price tool, a way to see coverage options based on a driver's budget. Learn more at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law.
12: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. We have
11: a warrant. A federal court in Florida has unsealed the warrant and the property receipt from the FBI search on Monday of former President Donald Trump's estate. The warrant directed agents to look for evidence of violations of the Espionage Act and two other federal laws around destroying or concealing documents or removing government materials. The property receipt, basically an inventory of what the FBI took, shows that the FBI recovered several boxes of confidential material, one marked classified slash top secret slash SCI that's sensitive compartmented information so to try to understand what's going on we're going to check back with Barbara McQuaid a professor at University of Michigan Law School and a former U.S. attorney hi there hi Mary Louise hi so let's talk about this warrant it instructs investigators to look for evidence of crimes against three federal statutes including the espionage act so how how serious is this
26: it's It's much more serious than I think we even imagined. Earlier in the week, we were talking about other statutes that talk about retaining government documents or mishandling government documents. The Espionage Act here talks about documents that you know are involved in spying, the kinds of things that could damage the national security of the United States or could be used to advance a hostile adversary. So I don't know what they are. I don't know what he intended to do with them, but the stakes are very high there. Um, for just possessing these documents, it is a 10-year felony. Uh,
11: we also got a little bit more detail about uh, the property that the FBI took, this inventory. There is the, uh, Roger Stone's executive grant of clemency. There is apparently information regarding the president of France. Um, some photos, a lot of boxes, some of which, as we mentioned, had classified information. What stood out to you?
26: Well, what stood out to me is an item that said classified TSSCI documents. These are documents that are, by definition, documents the disclosure of which would cause exceptionally grave harm to the national security of the United States. Because they are so sensitive, they are required to be stored in something known as a SCIF, a sensitive compartmented information facility. It's a special room with special locks that is checked for bugs. It's authorized and inspected on a regular basis by the CIA. And these boxes are in his basement at Mar-a-Lago, a a, a, a social club where people come and go. Um, That was another eye-popping revelation to me, that this is just uh, so much more egregious than I think it was being portrayed earlier in the week. You know, I think to, to hear some of Trump's supporters talk about this, you would have thought that this was the menu from the White House mess that he had retained. Instead, these are some of the most sensitive documents in government.
11: Um, Now, former President Trump himself, well, he said quite a lot this week, um, statements varying from claiming without evidence that this was an FBI plant um, to lying that former President Obama also took home classified material. I'll note that the National Archives has debunked that. Um, But he... Also says, "Look, I can declassify anything I want." He said, "You know, he could declassify this information himself, and then it would no longer be top secret." He has a track record of declassifying information that intelligence agencies wish he had not done. Is there anything to that line of reasoning?
26: No, I don't think so. You know, this has been a shape-shifting defense, which prosecutors will always point to as. Uh, perhaps a reason to be skeptical that this defense is an honest one when we've got all of these different versions. First, it's a denial. Then it's maybe the FBI planted it. Then it's, well, sure, I had them, but I declassified them. Then it's, well, President Obama did it too, when in fact he didn't. Uh, So all of those things, I think, suggest that this is not a true defense. But as to whether he can declassify them, the answer is no. He can request declassification. He can direct declassification. But there is a process that is done to actually complete the declassification. Uh, it requires a review by the classifying agency that classified it to begin with. Even now, if I the president
11: he, says this, just to be clear, even if the president says, yeah. uh, you know, I, I declassified these on my way out of the White House.
26: He can request the declassification process. He cannot complete it himself. It requires people to carry that out. But what I where I think he may be going with this is that these statutes that have been alleged here require willful violation. That is that you know what you are doing is against the law. In contrast to most crimes where the ignorance of the law is no excuse, for these crimes it is. And so it could be that he is setting a defense to say, even though I lacked declassification authority, I thought I had it. And so because of that good faith belief, I didn't believe I was violating the law when I took home these documents. I think it's about as good as the Harvey Milk Twinkie defense. But uh, it could be that that's the groundwork he's laying here.
11: What about the underlying affidavit? Several former prosecutors have mentioned to NPR that the affidavit supporting this warrant could contain more detailed information as to why this search was authorized, could also reveal the names of FBI agents involved if they're not redacted. Um, Where would you put the chances we may get to see the affidavit?
26: Someday I think we'll get it. It may be redacted to exclude some of those names and some personal details. Um, I think that if this case is ever charged or declined, we will see it. But I think that that could be a bit down the road. And that's because it uh, does contain sensitive information about an ongoing investigation. And for reasons of protecting the investigation and people under investigation, Uh, these things are not revealed at this stage. So I I think eventually, but not for now.
11: So briefly, and bottom line, the big question this week was, would this all turn out to be a nothing burger? And I want to stress there are no criminal charges against the former president, but it sounds like in your view, there's a burger.
26: This is a double whopper with extra special sauce.
11: Uh, Is University of Michigan Law School professor and former federal prosecutor, Barbara McQuaid. Thank you.
26: Thank you.
12: In a village southwest of Kabul, families who support the Taliban once lived alongside families who did not. And in the past year, as MPR's Dia Hadid found in a recent visit, both sides have paid dearly in Afghanistan's decades of war. The drive to the village
29: of Patan Khair from the Afghan capital begins on a road gouged with holes from IEDs. The explosives were planted by Taliban fighters, to hit Afghan forces and Western troops over the past two decades. The road is also flanked by graves of Taliban fighters. They're marked with small flags hoisted on poles, white flags, green, red, even leopard print. The colourful cloth signifies a man who died young. Many of those fighters came from places like khel To get there, we veer off the highway, pass a valley and drive through a creek bed. And we reach the mud brick home of Ahmad Shah, at 40, he's a village elder. NPR producer Fazlman Allah Khazizai introduces us. Ahmed Shah has just returned from his apple orchard and he invites us in. He's gathered his cousins to meet us. And over lunch, he says, when the Taliban took over Afghanistan last year, we were elated.
10: It was not possible,
4: but with the help of God,
29: They celebrated what they saw as an end of an American occupation of their land and the end of a Western-backed government they saw as lackeys.
4: Lots of people slaughtered. Cows, sheep, goats, along the highway.
29: Shah's family paid dearly in service of that Taliban victory. Two of his brothers were Taliban fighters who were killed six years ago.
4: They went to the main highway and ambushed the enemy. When they were returning to the village, a drone fired missiles and killed them all.
29: His brother's deaths shook the village. This is Shah's cousin, Masood Sultani.
14: My brother stepped in to take their place after they died.
29: Sultani's brother also became a Taliban fighter, and he too was killed.
27: It was painful for us. He was my brother, and he was so young. But he died honorably, and that made it easier for us.
29: The cousins say they'd fight again if they have to, but they hope that the Taliban's rule will
27: endure.
6: We wanted the American occupation to end,
27: and God gave us that. We wanted to establish an Islamic system, and
15: for the rest, God is kind. All problems can be solved.
29: But they say there can be no compromise with Afghans who fought them. And the message is clear. In Patanhel, the villagers who did fight against the Taliban have fled, fearing retribution. Shah expresses no sympathy for them. So I ask, you grieve for your brothers. Do you think those families who you fought also grieve for their sons who were
27: killed? I'm
4: sure those people feel more pain than us because we lost our men fighting for the sake of Islam and Afghanistan. So we are comforted by that. What did their men die for?
29: To hear from those who lost their loved ones fighting the Taliban, we return to the highway juddering over those potholes and past those fluttering flags. And we meet Muhammad Qasem in a busy market town. He's the oldest of six brothers. They used to be six. One of his brothers served in the Afghan army fighting the Taliban. He was killed last year by an explosive planted near a checkpoint he was manning.
14: He was my beloved brother. He was the backbone of this family.
12: But that's
29: not the only brother Qasim lost. His younger brother ran away to join the Taliban. Six months later, he was killed by a drone strike. Muhammad Qasim says the war has brought us disaster.
14: In our village, you will see widows and orphans. Their fathers were killed in the fighting. Now they're destitute.
29: And it seems, sidelined by a group still savouring victory, as others mourn their losses. Dear Hadid, NPR News, Patan Khal.
11: Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
1: This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown. 76 degrees in Boston at 519. Ahead on All Things Considered, France battles a monster wildfire that has forced thousands to flee their homes. That's ahead here on WBUR. In business news, state gaming regulators are outlining how they will start to launch sports betting in Massachusetts. Governor Baker signed a bill this week legalizing wagers on sports. The state gaming commission plans to meet next week with five existing facilities that will be allowed to host sports betting to discuss the process. Those include two casinos, a slot parlor, and two simulcast centers. The commission also plans to request letters of intent from any companies that want to request a license to offer mobile-only betting. On Wall Street, stocks closed the day higher. The Dow was up 424 points at 33,761. Nasdaq was up 267 points at 13,047, and the S&P 500 up 73 points to close at 4280.
16: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Lights. Enjoy an evening lantern experience at Franklin Park Zoo with displays of hundreds of lanterns. Advance tickets required at franklinparkzoo.org. And Sullivan Tire and Auto Service, family-owned and operated, offering brand-name tires and complete auto service for more than 67 years. More at sullivantire.com.
1: Coming to City Space on Monday, August 15th, a primary debate with the Republican candidates for Massachusetts Lieutenant Governor. Free in-person and virtual tickets at WBUR.org slash events.
17: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Subaru featuring the 2022 Subaru Forester Wilderness. 9.2 inches of ground clearance and all-terrain tires for off-road capability. Learn more at Subaru.com Wilderness. And from Amazon Business, from small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business works to help simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at AmazonBusiness.com. And from the Lemelson Foundation.
11: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly.
12: And I'm Elsa Chang. The Chinese military, or the People's Liberation Army, has said it has, quote, "...completed various tasks around the island of Taiwan." What they're getting at is they are done, at least for now, with their largest ever military drills off Taiwan's shores. These drills have included ballistic missile launches, naval deployments, and live ammunition, a show of force that began days after House Speaker Nancy Pelosi visited Taipei. To talk more about what we learned about China's military capabilities from these drills, we're joined now by David Finkelstein. He's a former U.S. Army China specialist and director for Asian Security Affairs at the Center for Naval Analyses, an independent research institute. Welcome. Great to be here. So, David, what did the last several days around the Taiwan Strait reveal? Like, what feels new that we didn't know before about China's military capabilities now?
15: Well, uh, for those of us who track this... uh... And those in governments who've been tracking this for a long time, I don't think there was anything very, very new to learn that we hadn't known before. Mm -hmm. But what this was demonstrating was that after nearly three decades of focused and sustained military modernization, the PLA can finally provide the leadership of Beijing with a range of military options across the spectrum of conflict that it did not possess back in 95 and 96. And so this is something that Beijing wanted to demonstrate, not just to foreign audiences, not just to Taiwan and the region, but also, I think, to domestic audiences, because, of course, Beijing is entering its own domestic political season.
12: Okay, let's take a step back for a moment. What have we learned over the past couple decades as to how the Chinese military has been gradually preparing for a possible attack on Taiwan?
15: The Chinese military's focus on Taiwan is nothing new. And one of the key things they've been doing over the last few years is retooling themselves into a joint force, meaning a military that can fully integrate the army, the navy, the air force, the second artillery, or now which is known as the rocket forces, the missile forces, cyber, to perfect their ability to put together a holistic multi-service operation with Taiwan, is what the Chinese military refers to as the main strategic direction.
12: Right, and what might be some limitations that the last several days of drills revealed about the People's Liberation Army, you think?
15: It's hard to really answer that just from observing from media. From a strictly operational perspective, these exercises provided the People's Liberation Army the opportunity to what I call test driving their new organization, Mm -hmm. test drive their new joint command and control relationships, and also test drive their new joint operations doctrine. So they're the ones who are going to be learning a lot by working the kinks out of the new organization and the new doctrine. And we'll have to wait and see what they come up with.
12: Can you just paint a picture for us of one possible scenario as to how a Chinese invasion of Taiwan might unfold
15: my first reaction to that is that it assumes that that's the only option that they have
12: okay you say that xi jinping has various options at this point what are those options give us the range
15: the chinese people's liberation army the chinese military is uh, working and has been for many many years to provide the leaders of the communist party of china with military options should they choose to use military force for unification with taiwan They range from everything from a blockade of the island to potentially strangle it economically. It could be uh, massive missile attacks to destroy the morale of the people on the island. It could be disinformation attacks, cyber attacks, and it also has at one end of the spectrum the possibility of an all-out assault against the island.
12: Given that range of possibilities, how would you characterize Taiwan's military capabilities now?
15: Would Taiwan on its own be ready for that? Taiwan is facing a very difficult situation. They've got to think about what it takes to counter the worst scenario, which is an invasion. They also have to think about hardening their critical infrastructure against missile attacks, They seriously need to consider what it's going to take to mobilize society to repel any sort of military coercion. They're in a tough situation.
12: That is David Finkelstein, Director of Asian Security Affairs at the Center for Naval Analyses. Thank you very much. Well,
15: thanks so much. It's a pleasure to be with you today
11: to France now, which is battling monster wildfires as heat and drought scorch much of Europe this summer. Scientists say the catastrophic consequences of global warming are here, faster than expected. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley reports.
6: French
30: television footage showed a wall of fire devouring a pine forest and threatening villages in France's southwest Gironde region, not far from the vineyards of Bordeaux. 1,500 firefighters battled 24 7 alongside water bombing planes. Commander Mathieu Jaumin told French television it's unprecedented.
24: It's the first time we've had fires like this that last so long, and we don't see an end in sight with the weather they're forecasting
30: which is 100-plus degrees with no rain. 10,000 people have been evacuated in the Gironde, many for a second time. One man told French television he had not slept in the last month for fear of the fires reigniting. 115 square miles of forest have burned in the Gironde in just 10 days. French Interior Minister Gérald Darmanin called on employers to release all volunteer firefighters so they could join their units. Firefighters are also arriving from across Europe to help France. The European Space Agency said successive heat waves, shrinking rivers and rising land temperatures measured from space leave no doubt about the toll of climate change. A European satellite recently measured extreme land surface temperatures of 113 in Britain, 122 in France, and 150 degrees Fahrenheit in Spain. Sorbonne professor Hervé Le is a prominent climate change scientist. He says it's all come much faster than anybody imagined.
17: What is happening now is uh, some kind of surprise for, for many people because it's very intense.
30: True says trapped greenhouse gases have propelled the planet into a new phase where the old ways of dealing with climate catastrophes will no longer work. He says we'll need to come up with new ways of protecting forests, agriculture and cities.
23: We are in a situation
17: which is not the one we wanted to see. And it's something that uh, a number of years ago people were thinking we, we could uh, avoid, that we could maybe work uh, to diminish the greenhouse gases uh, sufficiently not to be facing this, but now it's too late.
30: On Thursday, researchers in Finland announced that the Arctic has heated up four to seven times faster than the global average over the past four decades, not two to three times faster as previously thought. Sebastian Mernild is a professor of climate change and glaciology at the Climate Institute of the University of Southern Denmark. He says it's because snow cover has diminished and there is 40% less sea ice than in 1979.
23: So today, the energy is more absorbed compared to reflected,
5: meaning that we have now more energy uh, available uh, for heating up both uh, the ocean temperature, but also the temperature in the lower part
17: of the atmosphere
30: both scientists interviewed for this story say catastrophes like the fires and drought in europe this summer will intensify and become more frequent as global warming accelerates eleanor beardsley npr news paris
12: this is npr
1: news and this is 90.9 wbur good afternoon i'm steve brown 75 degrees in boston at five thirty. coming up on all things considered how the presidential records law has changed since the nixon administration that's ahead here on wbur increasing clouds tonight the lows will be around 62 degrees cloudy through mid-morning tomorrow followed by gradual clearing the highs will be around 74 degrees again right now 75 degrees in boston a lot of us talk to our cars when we're driving in my case it's mostly me saying come on
24: come on come on please start
1: if your car's like that then maybe it's time for a new conversation Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. Let's talk about donating your car, your old or unwanted car, whatever it is. It can be turned into Morning Edition, Wait, Wait, or Snap Judgment. Trust me, your car will understand. Here's how.
16: Just go to WBUR.org.
21: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. A federal judge has unsealed the warrant used to search the Florida estate of former President Donald Trump this week. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports the release of the documents came shortly after attorneys for Trump gave the court the green light to do so.
2: The search warrant shows the FBI seized top secret and secret documents from Trump's residence. Agents removed more than a dozen boxes that contained binders of photographs, classified government materials, and at least one handwritten note. The items also included a document about pardoning Roger Stone, a staunch ally of Trump's who was convicted of lying to Congress during its investigation of Russian interference in the 2016 election.
21: NPR's Windsor Johnston in Washington. The virus that causes polio has been detected in New York City wastewater. Sikhan Akpan from member station WNYC has more.
14: Their announcement comes about a month after nearby Rockland County recorded the first U.S. polio case in almost a decade. Since then, the virus, which can cause paralysis and death in the unvaccinated, has also been detected in the state's Hudson Valley. Officials say 86% of New York City youngsters are vaccinated on average, but rates vary zip code to zip code, with some under 70%. Most people who catch polio are asymptomatic, allowing it to spread silently in at-risk groups. The city is urging anyone who is unvaccinated or unclear of their status to contact their doctors. For NPR News, I'm Sikhan Akpan in New York City.
21: Author Salman Rushdie, whose the satanic verses led Iranian officials to call for his death in the 1980s, was stabbed this morning at a speaking event in New York. A suspect was apprehended, and Rushdie was airlifted to a nearby hospital. The Dow closed up 4.24. The Nasdaq was up 2.67. This is NPR News.
1: This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. Members of the all-democratic Massachusetts congressional delegation are celebrating the passage of a climate and health care bill. The House passed it just moments ago. It would invest in clean energy development, cap Medicare out-of-pocket drug costs, and create a new corporate minimum tax. Congressman Jake Auchincloss says the bill would support offshore wind development in Massachusetts.
4: The Inflation Reduction Act is a generational step forward in taking on big oil and gas and driving our nation towards a clean energy future.
1: Republicans have opposed the bill and say the government spending in it would make inflation worse. The MBTA is releasing more information about the alternative transportation it will have in place when the Orange Line and part of the Green Line shuts down for about a month, starting late next week. It says neighboring commuter rail lines will make additional stops and shuttle buses will make stops at all but four Orange Line stations. Those stations are Tufts Medical, Chinatown, Downtown Crossing and State. The T has also posted a rider's guide on its website to help people navigate the closures. The shutdowns are for repairs and to finish work in advance of the Green Line extension. Tax free weekend in Massachusetts is tomorrow and Sunday. Shoppers can save the six and a quarter percent sales tax on many items up to $2,500. WBUR's Yasmin Amher has more.
7: Massachusetts has been expensive for a long time now, but the consequences of having to pay more for things like housing and utilities are becoming more severe. Eileen McEnany is the president of the Massachusetts Taxpayers Foundation.
16: People are more sensitive to the relative cost differences among jurisdictions, and that we may have to more proactively uh, recruit and, and retain talent than we've had to in the recent past.
7: The report suggests improving the MBTA and building more housing will help. McEnany also says the state must lower the cost of doing business as more companies consider expanding remote options. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Yasmin Ammer.
1: The Boston Fan Expo begins today at the Convention and Exhibition Center in South Boston. The convention brings together fans of comics, gaming, film, and TV. Organizers expect more than 50,000 visitors over the weekend. Fan Expo Vice President Andrew Moyes says this is the first full Boston Expo since the start of the pandemic.
4: These events are really about community. It's about the fans coming together, people dress up in their costumes to honor their heroes and their icons. And they celebrate together uh, in a safe, comfortable space.
1: Actors from The Lord of the Rings and Star Wars, among other movies, are scheduled to appear. Sports the Red Sox open up a three-game series with the Yankees tonight over at Fenway. In the forecast, increasing clouds tonight. The lows will be around 62 degrees. Cloudy through mid-morning tomorrow, followed by gradual clearing. The highs will be around 74. Right now, 75 degrees in Boston.
17: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system. Designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax-efficient strategies at fidelity.com slash wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE.
12: From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California.
11: And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. The FBI is now examining documents that were at the Florida residence of former President Donald Trump. For the first two centuries of U.S. history, this kind of controversy never came up. That is because an outgoing president was free to take his papers when he left the White House. That tradition ended abruptly with President Richard Nixon and the Watergate scandal. For more, I'm joined by NPR's Greg Myrie. Hey, Greg.
23: Hi, Mary Louise.
11: All right, situate this in some slightly more recent history. Trump's handling of documents when he was president, when he was in the White House, because there was plenty of controversy then, too.
23: Uh, Absolutely. There was a stream of evidence and anecdotes throughout his presidency. We know he didn't like to read documents in the first place, and there were lots of reports he would tear them up in anger or that even flush them down the toilet. Uh, The president spoke sometimes or put on Twitter sensitive material that was believed to be classified. There were reports that secret material was being shared widely with people who weren't authorized to read it. So I guess it's not really surprising that a president who busted so many norms while in office has apparently uh, broken some more uh, now that he's an ex-president by taking some documents uh, out of the White House when he left.
11: How is it supposed to work? What are the rules for ex-presidents and the, the documents, the millions of documents they would create or see while they're in office?
23: Well, as we noted, for about 200 years, there really were no rules. Presidents simply took what they wanted. It was considered their personal property. And before Franklin Roosevelt, there were no presidential libraries. So it really was up to an outgoing president as to how his documents were handled. Here's how presidential historian Lindsey Chervinsky puts it early on, presidents like John
2: Adams
8: and Thomas Jefferson were very attuned to their place in history and their legacy. And so they were very thoughtful about maintaining their documents, cataloging their documents,
2: and then of course, sort of making sure that what remained was what they wanted to remain. So that also includes some erasure. So Greg, this system worked for
11: nearly 200 years right up until President Nixon and Watergate?
23: Yeah, that's right. And when President Nixon resigned in 1974, he wanted to take his documents and his infamous tape recordings with him. But Congress said, hold on, we want to see those documents and, and recordings. We certainly don't want them destroyed. They swiftly passed a law in 74 that made Nixon's material public property in effect. And then Congress passed a more sweeping Presidential Records Act in 1978. I spoke about this with Jason Barron. He's a former senior official official. official at the National Archives, he explains what this law means. Every president, when they leave office, those records that have been created by the president and his staff are presidential records that go to the National Archives. The owner is the American people. And to be clear, this includes all presidential material. Doesn't matter matter whether it's doodles on a notepad or top secret national security documents.
11: So to what degree have presidents followed this law since then?
23: Well, uh, generally, there have only been a few episodes with presidential aides. In one prominent case, Sandy Berger, who'd worked for President Clinton, was uh, caught smuggling classified documents out of the National Archives in his pants. Mm. Uh, He was eventually fined $50,000. The people I spoke with said all the former presidents were very cooperative, just a few minor instances where a president may have received a small gift and was later asked to return it.
12: And Pierre's Greg Myrie. Thank you, Greg. My pleasure. All right, with just a few hours' notice, Houston rapper Megan The Stallion surprised fans and released her new album, Traumazine, early today.
8: Since my mama 2019,
26: I don't
12: really know who I could trust. I a follow-up like, to her 2020 like, debut, Good News. This album takes stock of the artist's tumultuous past few years and reasserts her superstar status. Sydney Madden has been listening. She's an NPR music reporter and co-host of the podcast Louder Than a Riot, and she is here to tell us all about the new album. Hey Sydney.
31: Hey Elsa. Hey, okay. So can you just first explain what
12: is the meaning behind the name Traumazine, you think?
31: Megan got creative. She took some poetic license, and she shared that the title on social media, Traumazine, is in reference to the fictional chemical that is released in your brain when you're forced to deal with painful emotions caused by traumatic events and experiences, which is uh, digging really deep into what the album is about. I'm just curious, how do you think this album fits overall into Megan's whole body of work? In my opinion, Traumazine is a huge artistic step forward for Megan. She's showing off vulnerability in ways that she's never really done before on Mike. So fans of Megan know that she's usually known for more high adrenaline, sexy, fun, salacious, braggadocious type of tracks like Savage, which won her the Grammy. And I mean, don't get it twisted. This album has that too, But the beauty of it is really the dexterity of the project. It's that those types of tracks are offset with deep contemplations about the trauma she's experienced in her life so far, and more pointedly, the double standards in society that Black women carry with them when they're objectified, appropriated, She's been involved in extensive legal battles with her former record label over contract disputes, and both of her parents passed away just as she started blowing up. And in the summer of 2020, she was involved in an incident of assault when she was allegedly shot by fellow musician Tori Lanes as the two were leaving a party in L.A. It's a lot to process.
12: Yeah, it is a lot to process when you lay it all out like that. I mean, where do you hear some of that sort of deep reflection about her past traumas in these songs?
31: There's a specific run of songs in the sequencing of this album that really feels like diary entries. So on one track called Anxiety, she breaks down in the lyrics and it feels like she's having a stream of conscious thought trying to describe what moving through life with this anxiety and this post-traumatic stress really feels like. It's, It's raw, it's real, and it's it can't be
18: faked.
12: So Sydney, I mean, you've been covering Megan Thee stallion since like the very beginning of her career. What moves you personally like the most about this album?
31: I think what strikes me most is Megan's ability to harness all that vitriol that's been slung at her over the past few years and channel it into truly beautiful art. The imagery so far, with all of the rollout and, and the video snippets shared, it's evoking a type of Disney's maleficent vibe, you know, black, leather, latex, embodying that misunderstood villain. And I really think one key question that this album probes listeners to really consider is to what end does Megan owe the public any more type of processing of this very, very real, very public pain? Just as she subverted a lot of long-held double standards about sexual agency being used to shortchange or detract from her craft, the emotions shown on Traumazine really break down the strong Black woman trope that has been used for far too long to rationalize black women's mistreatment, disposability, and mortality.
12: That is NPR's Sydney Madden. Thank you so much, Sydney.
31: Thank you you don't disturb me
16: when I'm working. better back
11: It's all things considered from NPR News. On Monday, more than 2,000 mental health care providers at Kaiser Permanente in California say they will go on strike. The therapists and counselors accuse the company of making patients wait too long to connect to critical mental health care. The strike comes at a time when the pandemic has increased the need for mental health treatment and highlighted longstanding problems with access across the country. NPR's Ritu Chatterjee has the story. Sarah Sorokin is a triage therapist
32: with Kaiser Permanente in California.
20: I speak with patients when they call in for the first time requesting mental health services, and I do a brief evaluation and help link them to needed care.
32: She says the company has never had adequate mental health staff. For as long as she can remember, it's taken patients weeks to get an appointment not only does that take a toll on patients and their families Sorokin says it's affected the well-being of providers too
20: our therapists are leaving Kaiser in record numbers because um The workload is unsustainable. They're not able to see patients um, when patients should be seen.
32: And the pandemic has only made things worse.
20: I've even recently spoken with um, a parent of a patient, um, the patient being a child who had a serious suicide attempt recently, and they were waiting a month and a half for their first individual therapy appointment.
32: Sorokin and her colleagues have been asking Kaiser to hire more staff and to make workloads more manageable. But the union negotiations, which have been going on for a year, have failed to reach an agreement.
20: So a strike really is a last resort, but the status quo is just unacceptable. The level of suffering um, is egregious.
32: Now, access to mental health care is a problem across the country, and it's only gotten worse in the last two years. More people seeking care at a time when a growing number of providers are leaving their jobs. But the state of California recently passed two laws to address some of these problems. Sal Roselli is the president of the National Union of Healthcare Workers, which represents the providers at Kaiser Permanente. He says one law requires that...
15: Every provider has to provide a a range of medically necessary care. And if they can't provide it in-house, they have to pay to have it provided externally.
32: And the second law requires health systems to schedule appointments within 10 days.
4: Uh, Kaiser is doing neither of these things, obeying neither of these laws.
32: Now the company says it's trying to hire more people. Trisha Rodriguez is senior vice president of clinical services at Kaiser Permanente.
13: We've hired nearly 200 new therapists since January of 2021. But
32: she adds.
13: This is not only a problem for Kaiser Permanente. This is across the nation where mental health care worker shortages plague us all.
32: Psychologist Jared Skillings is with the American Psychological Association. He says the problems at Kaiser isn't just about the number of providers.
24: It's about poor working conditions and the continual requirement
4: to see patients at a pace that is unhelpful for the patient and unhelpful for the clinician. Too many patients, too fast, too big a caseload.
32: Skilling says unless the company addresses these problems and invests in mental health care the way it has in physical health, it will continue to deny patients the mental health care they need. Ritu Chatterjee, NPR News.
12: This is All Things Considered from NPR News.
1: And this is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. 75 degrees in Boston at 549. Ahead on All Things Considered, we'll hear from Amelia Meath and Nick Sanborn, the duo of Sylvan Esso, about their new album, No Rules Sandy. That's ahead here on WBUR. Read all about it all month long. We're sharing ideas and favorite picks for summer reading including some with a New England twist. Get in on the fun at WBUR.org BeachBooks.
20: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet. Committed to delivering Internet service over a gig. Designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com
1: gig. In sports, the Yankees are in town this weekend over at Fenway Park. They'll be taking on the Red Sox. In the forecast, increasing clouds tonight. Lows around 62 degrees, cloudy through mid-morning tomorrow, followed by gradual clearing. The highs will be around 74 degrees. Sunday will be sunny. 81 degrees will be the high. Again, right now it's 75 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. I remember thinking... How helpless I felt not being able to make
18: my own decision to keep my own baby. In that moment in my life where I felt
11: so powerless, I apparently made some internal vows that, no, I need to be able to stand for what I believe is right for myself.
5: I'm Michael Barbaro. That's Today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR.
11: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers.
8: Fort Adams State Park sits on the coast of Rhode Island. It looks out onto the Narragansett Bay and, by extension, the Atlantic Ocean. And on a sunny Sunday afternoon in July, the band Sylvan Esso announced to the crowd gathered there for the Newport Folk Festival that they had a new album coming out, and then they proceeded to perform it. It was a high unlike any other,
9: honestly. It was so very rarely do you get to play a new record from start to finish anyway, but to get to debut it that way was so
33: fun.
17: Take care of each other.
33: Usually when any band I think is kind of doing the old, here's a new one, it's always a little bit of a crapshoot as to whether or not people are gonna follow you along on a bunch of songs that they don't already know the chorus to.
8: Nick Sanborn and Amelia Meath are Sylvan Esso. Their new album is No Rules Sandy and it's out today. Nick and Amelia are married and live together at a home studio they built outside Durham, North Carolina, where they also run a record label. But this album was mostly not made there. This is the fastest
9: record we've ever made from start to finish. We began it on like January 5th after our yearly road trip from North Carolina to Los Angeles. We got to LA with assuming that we were gonna go to the Grammys and that we were gonna do a lot of writing sessions, but then the Omicron spike happened. So all of a sudden we were in this rental house with a surplus of time. And every day we would just go into our little studio, which was the living room, and see if we could write a song. And because of that, this is a more frenetic and vulnerable and open and weird record. Than we've made in a long time.
19: I you were good and old, but I didn't hold you in my mind.
33: I think that for us, the last few years, there's been a lot of woodshedding, working on our craft. All of that work kind of just started to pay off. It was just about sitting down and trying to surprise the other one. The easier it came, and the more we trusted it.
8: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When I you, it be. That idea of trying to surprise the other one as you're collaborating, as you're creating together, is that, is that new for you?
9: No, it's kind of always been the basis of how we figure out what we're going to do next is we follow the things that make the other one excited. When you've been working together for as long as Nick and I have, the real joy
8: is in the surprise. Give us an example of how that surprise shows up in No Rule Sandy.
9: Oh, well, like usually whenever I do a vocal take, I do melody and lyrics at the same time, and I write them out in my notebook. And then when I do a vocal take, it's the first time that Nick has heard the words that I've written or the melody that I've created. So to me, that's always present. It's actually how we got the name for the record, because in a backup line in the song, your reality I say, No Rules For Me, No Rules Lately, No Rules Sandy.
8: What does No Rules Sandy, what does that mean to you? I, I, Your reality is one of my favorite songs on the album.
9: Thank you. That's nice to hear you say that, because so many people have been, uh, we're in Los Angeles. So it's been a lot of like sweet, delicate guys in hats being like, yeah, but that's weird. Um, <laughs> were they wrong originally? Or are we learning how to be surreal but free? It's your reality. Um, hold on, I'm sorry, I got distracted by making fun of men and I forgot what you were
28: going <laughs> to say. That happens to me often, it really
17: does. <laughs> <laughs>
8: I wanted to talk to you about the name of the album No Rules Sandy. What does that mean? It became kind of a mantra for us
9: where all of the guiding principles that we had used that were about making a pop record, we kind of threw away. Pop is such a study in in like form and sound mm-hmm. and um, we feel like we learned the rules and figured out how to write pop songs in the way that we write them. So we threw all those things away and began again
33: on especially our last two records, there was always this other, these other elements in the room of like, you know, how's this going to play on a stage? How's this going to feel at a festival? How's radio going to feel about this? How's so, you know, all of these other things were kind of hanging there in the air. And I think for this one, just none of that was, you know? I was, we were truly just thinking about, you know, our own and each other's like delight and and feeling confident in making stranger and stranger choices. I think after the last couple records we felt like we said what we wanted to say with that and and now we're kind of in our own strange musical space that is only defined by what the two of us like.
8: As a listener one of the songs that I was, found myself sort of mesmerized by when I was listening to the album is Coming Back to You because it is so different than everything else on the album. It's intense and it's timeless.
17: I'm
8: 85
9: I'm 16
8: I am a A
19: baby
8: Tell us about this song.
9: I learned how to play guitar during the pandemic, like so many of us did. (laughs) And it was one of the first songs I wrote on the guitar. I think, right Sandy? Yeah.
33: Yeah, to me, this song is interesting because it's one of the only ones that was actually written apart. Amelia wrote this Hmm. and sent it to me when when we weren't together. And immediately I was like, this has to be on the next record that we make. And when we were making this, it just felt like, you know, there's this themes of all of the, you know, all of the tumultuous changes we've all dealt with in the last two years, I really feel apparent to me on the record and closing it with this moment where, you know, she's singing to me as we're reuniting, felt like that was the only way it could go.
8: Come back to you. Amelia Meath and Nick Sanborn, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you.
33: Yeah, thanks so much for having us back.
8: Nick Sanborn and Amelia Meath are Sylvan Esso. Their new album is called No Rules, Sandy, and it's out today.
9: I'm on an airplane. I'm in a boat.
11: You're listening to All
17: Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline the hiring process. Indeed works to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates in one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from Workday. An enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system. Designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com.
1: This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Coming up in 6 o'clock in the next half hour of All Things Considered, a judge has unsealed the warrant the FBI used to search the property of former President Donald Trump. That's ahead here on WBUR.
7: I'm here now host Robin Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's
0: NPR news station. The president's calling on Syria to end this and help us bring him home. Help us bring him home. I like that collaborative language.
1: The mother of an American journalist who was kidnapped in Syria a decade ago still has hope for her son's safe return. It's Friday, August 12th. This is WBR's All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Steve Brown. Also ahead, a federal judge has unsealed the warrant used for searching Donald Trump's home in Florida, along with an inventory of what the FBI confiscated. We'll have a conversation with Lisa Snowden, editor-in-chief of the Baltimore Beat, about the return of the black-led not-for-profit newspaper. And Prey, the new prequel to the 1987 blockbuster Predator, streaming on Hulu, features a sophisticated soundtrack influenced by both native cultures and video games. It's 6.01. Now this
24: news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Court records released today are showing a trove of top-secret and confidential documents, binders of photos, handwritten notes, even an executive grant of clemency for Roger Stone. It's just some of the items taken by the FBI from the private residence of former President Donald Trump. The item seized this week after U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland authorized the search of Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate in Palm Beach. The list released after Trump and his lawyers did not object does not provide any detail about the substance of the documents. However, materials marked top secret are only meant to be viewed in secure government facilities, so Trump's possession of the material was an ongoing concern given their unsecured location. A top White House official is saying China overreacted to House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's trip to Taiwan. More from NPR's Ashma Khalid.
7: More than a week after Pelosi's visit to Taiwan, the White House continues to deal with the ramifications. President Biden's top Asia advisor, Kurt Campbell, told reporters in a conference call that China had used Pelosi's visit as a pretext to launch an intensified pressure campaign against Taiwan.
24: China has overreacted and its actions continue to be provocative, destabilizing and unprecedented.
7: He specifically called out China's recent military exercises in the region and reiterated that U.S. policy toward Taiwan has not changed biden and china's president xi jinping have not met in person since biden took office but there are talks of a possible face-to-face meeting in the coming months asma khalid
24: npr news house lawmakers by a 220 to 207 vote have approved the 430 billion dollar package the biden administration is calling the inflation reduction act the question now is will the bill actually do that Inflation's at its highest level in nearly four decades, and the measure approved today may not achieve its goal immediately. Democrats say the bill, designed to fight climate change, lower prescription drug prices, and work to ensure corporations and the wealthy pay the taxes they owe, will bring down some prices, though. Stocks rallied at week's end on strong reports about inflation. NPR's David Gurra reports... All of the major indices were up more than 1%.
1: All three major indexes finished the week in positive territory, the fourth week in a row for the NASDAQ and the S&P. Markets built on a rally kicked off midweek by better-than-expected data on inflation. The Consumer Price Index for July showed prices rose by 8.5% from a year earlier, less than forecasted and also less than the year-over-year increase in June. That, coupled with encouraging data on wholesale prices, changed Wall Street's expectations
24: of how aggressively the Federal Reserve will act at its next meeting in September. David Gura, NPR News. Taking a look at the numbers, the Dow jumped 424 points to end the week at 33,761. The Nasdaq was up 267 points. The S&P gained 72 points. This is NPR.
1: This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. The MBTA has released some new details for alternate transit during the closures of the orange and green lines that begin late next week. Shuttle buses will make stops between Forest Hills and Back Bay, between Haymarket and Oak Grove, and between Government Center and Union Square. No shuttle buses will run between Tufts Medical and State. There will be added service on the Silver Line. There will also be increased commuter rail service, which will be free for riders with a Charlie card. Riders can now be able to access a planning guide on the T's website to find alternate options for their routes. The T says it has also begun posting detailed information today about the diversion in affected stations. Boston-based researchers have noticed an alarming increase in complications from pregnancy and birth during the pandemic. WBUR's Priyanka Dayal-McCluskey reports those problems follow major disruptions in healthcare during the first year of COVID.
22: A new study shows Americans were more likely to have hypertension during pregnancy and severe bleeding after giving birth.
23: And one of the most concerning things that we saw was that, unfortunately, even though it was small, the rate of maternal death In this study, went up.
22: Dr. Jose Figueroa of Brigham and Women's Hospital is senior author of the study. He says healthcare shutdowns early in the pandemic meant fewer ultrasounds and blood pressure checks that can help identify problems early.
23: Routine obstetric outpatient care was just completely disrupted.
22: COVID related stress also may have led to more pregnancy complications. For 90.9 WBR, I'm Priyanka Adele-McCluskey.
1: The City of Boston is releasing details on how it's spent the money from the fees it charged North End Restaurants to host outdoor dining this year. It says it collected about $300,000 from the program but spent more than double that for things like keeping streets and sidewalks clean. Bill Galaitis is the managing partner of Tresca on Hanover Street. He says he's seen the impact of the fees his restaurant paid.
24: We've noticed an increase in enforcement. Uh, We've noticed more inspectors down there uh, making sure that all the restaurants adhere to the new rules and regulations of the program. Now, we would love to see this program becoming a permanent program.
1: Jen Royal also paid the fee for her restaurant table and says any expectations she had for the program were not met.
8: There's trash everywhere. you know what if the city paid six hundred and twenty three thousand dollars to keep the neighborhood clean then then their money was not spent very wisely.
1: Outdoor dining in the north end is expected to end in September. In sports the Red Sox open up a three-game series with the Yankees tonight over at Fenway. The forecast increasing clouds tonight low 62 cloudy through mid-morning tomorrow followed by gradual clearing the highs will be around 74 degrees.
16: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, supporting those working towards a day when no one has to choose between paying rent, putting food on the table, and protecting their health and the health of others. RWJF.org.
11: On a Friday. It's all things considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington.
12: And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. A judge has unsealed the warrant that the FBI used to search the property of former President Trump. Now, the unprecedented search at the Mar-a-Lago resort on Monday has been shrouded in mystery. And now we know a little bit more about what the Justice Department collected. To talk more about that, we're joined now by NPR Justice correspondent Carrie Johnson, who has been closely following this story. Hi, Carrie. Hey, Okay, so first things first, what do these new documents tell us about the basis, the legal basis for the FBI search at Mar a Lago?
13: Sure. We have a set set of documents now. First, we have the search warrant, which was approved by a judge who found that probable cause, there was probable cause to believe a crime had been committed. And the second thing we have is a property receipt. That's kind of a list of things the FBI seized from former President Trump's office and basement in Florida this week. Mm -hmm. The FBI wrote that it took documents at top secret level. That's a very high level of classification. They also took a grant of clemency to Roger Stone, a longtime political advisor to former President Trump, and some information about the president of France. Federal agents also took other secret papers and a binder of photos, but nothing much more specific than that.
12: Okay, and to be very clear here, Trump has not been charged with any wrongdoing, but... Holding on to classified documents is against the law, right, Carrie? There are a number of criminal statutes that could come
13: into play here that were mentioned in these court documents, including laws against obstructing federal investigations, another law that makes it a crime to conceal, remove or mutilate government documents. And there's also a section of the Espionage Act that involves gathering, transmitting or uh, losing sensitive information related to the national defense but to stress here there's no criminal case against the former president right now and indicting a former president would be an enormous step for the justice system and for
12: the whole country absolutely okay no I know I know there's a whole lot more that remains under seal including an affidavit that would explain why the justice department decided to take action when do you think we might see that affidavit you know, hard to say right now. A number of media
13: organizations have asked the court to release that affidavit, which would explain the reason why the FBI thought there was probable cause and thought they would find that evidence at Mar-a-Lago. In typical cases, the public doesn't see this kind of stuff until someone's charged with a crime and then is then challenging the basis for the search. But mm-hmm. at this stage, the DOJ, DOJ doesn't usually say anything. Attorney General Merrick Garland explained why this case is different in a short statement on Thursday.
15: The department filed the motion to make public the warrant
11: and receipt in light of the former president's public confirmation of the search, the surrounding circumstances, and the substantial public interest in this matter.
13: Attorney General Garland asked the judge to make these pages public, and Trump did not object, which is why there's, we're seeing them now.
12: Right. Okay. And just catch us up. What has Trump been saying about this search so far?
13: Trump's been all over the map this week. First, he claimed without evidence the FBI had planted evidence in Florida. And then he posted on social media the idea of this whole matter as a hoax, like the probe of Russian election interference in 2016, which was not a hoax. And earlier today, Trump said former President Obama took materials when he left the White House and Trump alleged some of those documents were classified. That prompted the National Archives to put out a statement refuting those claims. The archive says it worked closely with Obama. It has millions of pages of documents and more classified documents, but none of them are in Obama's control. They're all under the archives' control, unlike these materials found at Mar-a-Lago this week.
12: That is NPR Justice Correspondent Carrie Johnson. Thank you, Carrie.
13: My pleasure.
11: On the bulletin board above my desk, I keep a small pin. It says, Free Austin Tice. His parents handed me that pin, and I have kept it ever since. Austin Tice is a journalist. This coming Sunday, August 14th, will mark ten years since he was detained at a checkpoint in Syria. All we have seen of him since is a video that surfaced five weeks later in which Tice appears, blindfolded and bound, surrounded by men with guns. His parents have never stopped looking for him, and they say there's evidence to suggest he is alive. Earlier this week, Deborah Tice, Austin's mom, came to NPR headquarters in Washington to speak with me again, and I noticed she was wearing
0: her pen. This is the new one. Bring home. Bring Austin home. Bring Austin home. And um, this is the new campaign. This was started by the Washington Post. Who he wrote for. Yes. He did. And they raised a banner on their building that says, bring Austin home. And I was able to be there when they put that up. It was really great. In terms of what you know
11: about Austin, I imagine any parent would understand your need to keep hope alive and how desperately you want that to be true. Um, But you say you have evidence that that is in fact true. Can you share...
0: What you know? Well, I mean, it's, it's intel. That's basically about as much as I can say about it. From the US? US government? Both ways. Some from the American government. And um, I think the fact that we have no news is truly good news, because I do believe if there were any kind of news, someone who cares for me would make sure that I knew.
11: You handed me that pen four years ago when I first interviewed you, uh, along with your husband, Mark, Austin's dad. And I have a few of the same questions now that I did then. Again, and I don't want to pin you down in any way that would jeopardize any negotiations uh, underway
0: for his his release. But do you know for sure that he's in Syria? He is in Syria. That is a certainty. And he is – he's definitely – Being held with a a government-related entity. So
11: some kind of group or entity with ties to the government of Bashar al-Assad.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'm thinking about
11: how you and your family are on your third American president trying to work on this. Um, I know you you were dealing with the Obama administration and then the Trump administration and now Biden. How engaged— Is the biden administration and trying to get your son home
0: our best engagement is through the national security council Mm -hmm. you know they're in the white house so that's a good place to have our our best connections i think you know how we got a meeting with the president that i was in the audience at the white house correspondence dinner so then when the president stood up to speak
15: Pointed pointed to me and said, Mom, I'd like to meet you and dad to talk about your son.
0: We feel fairly certain that the president was very much off script when he said that. And um, so that was Saturday night. And we had our meeting in his office Monday afternoon.
13: Hmm.
11: And I know President Biden has just issued a statement marking the 10th anniversary of Austin's detention. Um, What's your reaction when you read it? What did you think?
0: I think we're finally on the right track. There are things in this that really touch my heart.
11: You've got a copy of the statement in front of you. Like, what what touches your heart in it? Well, I,
0: I really appreciate that the president understands that Austin is an investigative journalist who put the truth above himself. To me, that feels so much like he really knows Austin's character, and that That means a lot to me. That's in the first paragraph. And the president's calling on Syria to end this and help us bring him home. Help us bring him home. I like that collaborative language because it is going to take both, and I appreciate the acknowledgement of that.
11: A line from President Biden's statement that I was struck by was this one, quote, there is no higher priority in my administration than the recovery and return of Americans held hostage or wrongfully detained abroad. know, I have thought of, of you, Mrs. Tice, often, as we have reported on other high-profile detentions of Americans overseas. Um, the case of WNBA star Brittany Greiner in Russia right now is making headlines. It's obviously a very different situation from your son's. But I have wondered what goes through your mind as you follow these other cases.
0: Every effort to bring someone home raises the water for everyone else that wants to come home, and so um, I can tell you that that when I saw the news so early in the morning that Trevor Reed was free, another
11: American who'd been held in Russia.
0: Yes, and I was just hallelujah, good brother. You know, you just paved a highway for Austin, because you showed that we can engage, that we can negotiate. And that we can make a concession. These are things I've been told for nine years cannot happen. So what are we lacking in Austin's case? It must be the will.
11: It sounds as though after 10 years of what I'm sure has been hell (laughs) every day, you sound as determined and hopeful and actually like there is some progress,
0: like things are moving I do believe things are moving now. Keeping in mind that we're almost three and a half months from our meeting with the president, we had certainly expected that we would have him home before August 14th. Whatever it is that Austin does to keep time, on Sunday, Austin will have to know it's been 10 years, and that is one of the deepest pains that I've felt over all of this time because he should not be there now. So I am. I'm, I'm more hopeful than I've been in a very long time. Deborah Tice, thank you. Thank you so much, Mary Louise. Thank you for making this time. Deborah Tice, her son—
11: The journalist Austin Tice was kidnapped in Syria 10 years ago this week.
12: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
1: This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good evening. I'm Steve Brown. 74 degrees in Boston at 619. Ahead on All Things Considered, the black-led not-for-profit newspaper, Baltimore Beat, is back. We'll hear from the paper's editor-in-chief. In business news, the largest employers in Massachusetts are a little smaller than they used to be. A Boston Business Journal review of headcounts finds the total number of workers is down 7% in the last year at the biggest 25 employers in the state. Losses were most pronounced in health care, grocery stores, and technology companies. Economists believe the decline is a result of a combination of worker burnout, layoffs, and a labor shortage. On Wall Street, stocks closed the day higher. The Dow finished up 424 points at 33,761. NASDAQ rose 267 points, closing at 13,047. We're funded by you, our
10: listeners, and by Comcast Business. Whether your business is starting or growing, Comcast Business is working to build a network to keep customers connected. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. And innuendo. The Massachusetts sales tax-free holiday is this weekend. Hunter Douglas automated Power View shades at Inuendo and Innuwindow.com.
25: Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at
1: WBUR.org slash cars. In sports, the Red Sox will be opening up a three-game series with the Yankees in just about an hour over at Fenway Park. In the forecast, increasing clouds tonight. The lows will be around 62 degrees. Cloudy through mid-morning tomorrow, followed by gradual clearing. The highs will be around 74. Right now, it is 74 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR.
11: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly.
8: And I'm Juana Summers. Alternative weekly newspapers are known for holding their city's institutional powers accountable, from government to the other media in town. In Baltimore, the city paper circulated for four decades, and that alt-weekly story ended like so many others, shuttered. The Baltimore Beat stepped in to fill the void, but roughly four months later, it shuttered too. And ever since, journalists have been working to revive it and this week, that happened. The Baltimore Beat is back, now as a non black-led, bi-weekly publication, available online or in print, all free of charge. Lisa Snowden is the editor-in-chief of The Baltimore Beat, and she joins us now to discuss. Welcome to All Things Considered, Lisa, and congratulations. Hi, thank you so much. So Lisa, this is a publication that is launching in Baltimore, a city that is more than 60% African-American. And the Baltimore Beat is not the only Black-led publication or news organization focused on Black audiences. Why does that diversity of options in a city like Baltimore matter so much?
18: Well, I think there's a few reasons. Number one, we're not a monolith. I think that there are ways that the Afro, which has been around for over a hundred years, meets Baltimore's needs. There's the Baltimore Times that does that also. But I think that we can find a particular lane with the Baltimore beat. We have city paper in our DNA. So I think that our lane is not at all to try to replace a 100 plus year old paper. Our lane is to figure out how to hold government accountable and do the things that we can do, provide deep arts coverage in the way that we can do it. I think black people deserve a multitude of
8: media outlets. We're just trying to help contribute to that. I want to quote from part of The Beat's statement on values. We do not believe there is a difference between arts coverage and hard news and understand that art is inherently political. Why did you feel the need to spell that out so plainly and make that distinction?
18: I think that draws on our alt-weekly roots, that this would not be a place where you would maybe just find big name stars. Maybe you'd find people having shows in alleys or, Mm -hmm. you know, the cellars of buildings. And both of those are important. And also that art is a thing that happens just like, quote unquote, the news.
8: Another thing that you talked about in that value statement is the fact that you all want to focus on the joy of being a Baltimorean. So Lisa, I want to ask you, what does that mean for you? It's a place that you have to have a sense of humor
18: (laughs) in. People here are so blunt and also so real And I feel like that's lost so much in the conversations about the city. We hear sometimes some very horrible racist things about the violence that happens here. And maybe we hear about the wire, but there's so much else that isn't talked about and we just wanna give space for that.
8: In an earlier interview, one of your colleagues told Baltimore Magazine that some newspaper distribution boxes may eventually serve as community exchange boxes so that people can take what they need and leave what they can, get things like gloves and hats in the winter. What's your thinking there?
18: So not only is there access in our boxes for information, the things that we're writing and printing, but just like a very easy way to contribute to the community so that people can put water bottles in there, books in there. We have we have one already out on the streets and it has Narcan in there. Mm. And I think, you know, as people are still suffering from the economic impact of the
8: pandemic, people are gonna need that kind of thing like more than ever. You have described The Beat elsewhere as a teaching newsroom. What does that mean and why does that matter? Journalism is not a
18: career where you're gonna make a lot of money. It's worse if you're black. And not only that, if you're black, you're often the only black person or maybe one of two or three others in the newsroom. And that can be a very distinct struggle. And so we really wanted The Beat to be a place where black journalists can get an education, can stay here if they would like to make a life in Baltimore or get their clips and maybe move somewhere else. I think that was very important to be intentional about that. Baltimore has Morgan State University, which is a historically Black college right here. And so it's like, I want those people that come to this community to stay here because we need their voices.
8: Lisa Snowden is the editor in chief of the Baltimore Beat, which relaunched this week. Lisa, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me.
11: The movie Prey is a prequel to Predator, a blockbuster Arnold Schwarzenegger hit from the 1980s. Prey is streaming now on Hulu. It's about a high-tech alien warrior landing on the Comanche plains 300 years ago. The score comes with its own backstory, as Tim Grieving reports.
4: The original Predator was a vicious game hunter from outer space equipped with thermal vision, a cloaking device, and big nasty mandibles. The new movie, Prey, goes back in time for an origin story, plopping the predator into the bucolic world of the Comanche people before the real-life invasion of alien colonists from Europe. Prey's director Dan Trachtenberg and producer Jane Myers, a Comanche herself, filled the cast with native actors and even recorded a Comanche-language dub. But Trachtenberg is also a gamer, and for the film's score, he sought out a non-native video game composer he admired, Sarah Schachner.
19: He had been playing Assassin's Creed Valhalla while they were in production on the film, and he really liked what he heard.
4: Schachner specializes in finding ancient, unusual instruments and weaving them into a modern action tapestry. She found a collaborator from a list of native musicians sent by producer Jane Myers, including a Grammy winner from New Mexico who felt the story of Prey was surprisingly familiar.
6: Living on a traditional Pueblo with ancient stories and ancient philosophy, we have stories like this, of the star people, of, we call them
4: or Robert Mirabal grew up in Taos Pueblo and still lives there now
6: those don't even translate except for the people of the heavens or the mud soap people or something like that. So it just was something that we grew up with.
4: For Prey, Mirabal got a chance to bring his work to a more mainstream audience. He marries traditional native idioms and instruments to modern jazz and rock. He plays multiple instruments but specializes in flutes, including a double-barreled one he invented himself. Composer Sarah Shachner had Mirabal go into a studio and improvise a library of free-ranging tones and notes. She took those tracks and incorporated them throughout her score for Prey. This being mid-pandemic, he was in New Mexico, she was in Los Angeles. At the end of their one-day remote recording session, Shackner asked Mirabal if he also sang.
19: And he was like, yeah, I sing." And he just sung something so honest and pure. <laughs> It touched me when he sung it and I know it it was so unplanned and it really just helped in certain moments of the film give that kind of extra layer of depth.
6: It's almost as if though you're whispering the story. There's a visual aspect to it, but then there's a whole nother mystical side of the story that is whispered to
4: you through music. So if you watch Prey, a movie about a high-tech humanoid that dismembers its victims, listen for that whisper in between all the screaming. For NPR News, I'm Tim Grieving.
11: This is NPR News.
1: This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. 74 degrees in Boston at 629. Marketplace is coming up next. We'll have increasing clouds tonight. The lows around 62 degrees. Cloudy through mid-morning tomorrow, followed by gradual clearing. The highs will be around 74 degrees. Sunday will be sunny. 81 degrees will be the high temperature.
16: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the MBTA, helping tens of thousands of people reach their destinations every day. The MBTA is hiring across multiple departments. The T offers competitive salaries, solid benefits, and established paths for growth. For more information and to apply today, visit mbta.com careers. And semester off, an education and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college students and high school grads get back on track fall semester starts september 19th semesteroff.com